we're conferring on, on the title, but I reached an age where I don't confer without my glasses and my hearing aid. Trap flea principle and other words. That's what I'm going to do tonight. Okay. Trap. Well, he's going to do whatever he likes because he's earned that this privilege, okay? So. Walk about Welcome, John. London. Thank you, Colin. This one's called Walk About London, and if I tell you that I've been working on it for 35 days, that does not mean you have to like it, but I finished at 5 a.m. this morning, so if, if my head pitches forward on the table in the course of this, you'll understand why. Uh, I, I'm going to divide this into two halves and give you a break in the middle, because the whole thing takes about 75 minutes. And having been a classroom teacher, two periods straight without a break is just nuts. So it's somewhere in the middle. Walk about London will be loosely gathered around the idea of something that I think is the genius of homeschooling, and that is what I call open source education. You're not confined to a curriculum or to a set of specified official books or test schedule. You can pick and choose like some great artist from all the colors on the palette. And uh, is anybody in here a new homeschooler? I mean, this is, could I, see your hand. So I, I'll just speak to this smaller group for a second. You've really got to take a deep breath and trust your instincts, trust your kids' instincts, trust yourself. It's something that we school teachers try to discourage you from doing, but not, not a good idea. So walk about London. I'll have to work from a script since this was just finished at 5 a.m. this morning. But I, I know the material intimately, so I hope it won't sound like a librarian reading. A former United States Supreme Court judge once remarked that he couldn't define hardcore pornography, but he knew it when he saw it. And you can say the same thing about open source learning, which is the subject of my me meandering presentation. To define it precisely, to reduce it to a mere formula, is to ruin it. Nevertheless, roughly what I'll be trying to get at is this. In natural open source, everything under the sun is a potential lesson. Nothing is excluded automatically on the grounds of age or appropriateness or test scores or stage theories of human development or anything else. Everybody alive or dead is a potential teacher, even mass murderers or the hopelessly insane. In open source, Teaching is a function, not a profession. In open source, nothing is standardized. The only tests 
are performances, not displays of memory. Students are pushed into taking an active role in selecting and recruiting their own learning sources, establishing sequences, evaluating progress. The fundamental assumption in open source learning is that nobody, I mean nobody on earth, can give you an education. An education has to be taken. I, I, I want you to know right before I came over here, I said, listen, Lord, don't let me waste their time. So, A, a letter I received from a 16-year-old stranger in Tulsa a couple of weeks ago will clarify these abstract ideas. Dear Mr. Gatto, it began, compulsory schooling indoctrinates people in the faith of arbitrary systems, which are or will soon become obsolete. Schools teach as if what is now thought to be true will always be truth. They suppress the natural evolution of concepts and practices. Schooling perpetuates itself by making people so dependent on obsolete systems they can't change. Case in point, school upends natural learning priorities instead of focusing on useful stuff or on self-mastery, it concentrates on test scores and class rankings. Isn't this marvelous as a 16-year-old kid? But those things can be improved in clever ways without actually learning anything. I think these days young people call that gaming the system. Now contrast the internet with school. Anything can be learned through the internet. It transcends all boundaries, all social distinctions. It makes knowledge difficult to hoard and free speech hard to curtail. Before the internet, a student with a yen to uh, pursue something odd like uh, number theory would wait for college or would have to buy some difficult books which followed a pattern designed for the average. But average people don't exist except as statistical fictions. So standardized presentations are an inherently inefficient educational compromise. Learning doesn't have to proceed that way. As quickly as I type number theory into a search engine, my study begins. I design my own curriculum, one that fits me, and as I do that, I develop deeper understanding of the concept. On the internet, I learn what I choose not limited by someone else's curriculum or standards. As it stands now, it's possible to school yourself from kindergarten through a PhD without ever entering a classroom. All you want is free. Ask in a forum like magic, many will answer. The institution of standardized schooling 
is needed less and less. It cannot adapt to individuals. It cannot provide the same depth of content or quality of assistance. So for my teenage friend, the internet makes schooling irrelevant and homeschooling does the same for millions of others. I can't tell you how inspiring it is for me who wasn't homeschooled, who didn't homeschool his own kids, and who barely understood the term when I left school teaching at age 55, but now I've seen homeschoolers all over planet Earth, and what you're doing is so inherently superior to the very best that others do that I just take my hat off to you, and I think maybe there's some hope for planet Earth. Do not... <laughs> That's you. Let me give you the applause. Do not ask for whom the bell tolls, O school. It tolls for thee. All right, now I'm going to tell you about a Chinese peasant named Shen Wen Rong and see if you can figure out how this connects with homeschooling. A few years back, the mighty Tyson Krupp Steel Company decided to unload its huge Phoenix plant in Dortmund, Germany. It decided to dump it on China because steel prices were down, had been down for a long time, and management thought that overproduction would cause this to be true for a long time to come. So what better time to dump this plant that supported 10,000 families on unsophisticated China for not one, but two payoffs. Once in the sales price, then once to tear down this thing that covered hundreds of acres, pack it up, ship it to China, and reassemble it. China swallowed the first hook, but not the second. It wouldn't pay the moving bill. Tyson had estimated it would take three years and hundreds and hundreds of highly paid engineers and specialized technicians, as well as thousands of workmen to do this. Too much, said China. We're going to move Phoenix ourselves. But where would China get the specialists to do this really one-of-a-kind job? Well, it didn't. One fine day, 1,000 Chinese peasants under the direction of a peasant named Shen Wen Rong showed up in Dortmund, Germany. Shen Wen Rong didn't use a computer and he worked from behind a school teacher's, not a school teacher's desk, a school kid's desk. And the first thing he said is, we're not gonna waste money buying German cooking and German rooms. They built their own housing and their own commissary in three weeks. And then inside of one year, not three years, these ignorant presents had taken Phoenix down, 
crated it, shipped it, ran back home, uncrated it, and put it up in China. Uh, so, in the time it took to dismantle and transport the Phoenix plant from Germany, China's huge orders on world markets drove the price of steel right through the roof, so it made money in China from day one, a lot of money, and had the Germans kept it in Germany, it would have made money there too, but of course, the slick college-trained staff, executive staff, had been outfoxed by peasants. So don't forget Shen Wen Rong. He will be a useful reference point as you work to deprogram yourself and to understand how rule-driven schooling, radically disconnected from real-world reality, is an inadequate preparation for an uncertain future. How did Shen learn to direct such an operation? Maybe that's the wrong question. Consider the possibility that every one of us have been deceived all our lives into believing that experts and specialists are needed for things which are really well within the reach of ordinary people. You only have to go to the great cathedrals in France built eight or nine hundred years ago, these monumental constructions that are true to a hundredth of an inch and built by people who had to put down the hay fork to come and do it to sort of see that we passed through an era of Shen Wen wrongs before the expert propaganda got to us. And now, Walk About London, the title of this talk. An irrational respect for experts and rules is conditioned into us by 12 years or more of rule-driven schooling. That's why we find it hard to believe that, uh, I'm, I'm deliberately using an insulting term, that a stupid Chinese peasant could do a better job than spitting polished German engineers, or that an ignorant torch singer could take over the admissions office at America's premier technical college, MIT, and do such a beautiful job that she was given the school's highest honor for administrators. There'll be more on that lady in a minute. This just broke in the New York newspapers about two weeks ago. So this soft core brainwashing about what ordinary people absolutely can't do is why we don't know what to think in the States when we learn that America's first president as a fatherless boy of 11 and not considered to be very bright, not dumb, but not very bright, started school by studying trigonometry, geometry, and surveying. Those were his first three subjects. 
he gradually added shipbuilding, architectural design, military science, horseback riding, and ballroom dancing to the curriculum. And you'll be surprised to learn that in later life, he said that ballroom dancing and horseback riding were the two keys to his very, very successful career. I'm talking about George Washington. He said, because they imparted on my physical being a presence that made me looked at wherever I went, because he was a good dancer. <laughs> anyway, rule-driven schooling creates a wonderful fit with factory work, with clerical duties, with hamburger flipping, and with bureaucratic jobs, but it hurts our ability to think critically and creatively. Oddly enough, that disturbing fact isn't my opinion. It's been quite well known for thousands of years. They just didn't bother to tell people who were burping the baby and mowing the lawn and walking the dog that it's deliberately done to mute your imagination and your ability to think. I'll get to that in a little while, and I think that the hair will stand up on your head figuratively. So the Battle of Waterloo really was won on the playing fields of Eton, just like it's not an expression. It explains why World War II German forces were able to inflict 40% more casualties than they took even when they were outnumbered four to one because Germany trained its officer corps, not its privates, but its officer corps, that war was a game called Kriegspiel and they should go about it as if they were playing a game. In the American officer corps, which took, which almost always outnumbered the Germans in the Second World War, almost always by at least two to one, and most often by four to one, the rule books were 6,000 pages long, and if you didn't operate according to a rule in a battle situation, you were likely to be court-martialed. Whereas the Germans were playing at it as if it was a game. Dense nets of rigid rules were built into forced institutional schooling a hundred years ago in preparation for the advent of a big industrial economy and a big government to match. That's exactly why schools function as they do in order to construct a predictable proletariat who serve faithfully because they don't know what else to do. Trouble is our big industrial economy in the United States is dying fast and the big government set up to run interference for it has been spending well over a half trillion dollars a year more than it earns. So the familiar bells and loudspeaker schools 
built around low-grade intellectual training, built around the strict rationing of skills, and an absolute minimum of practical applications, and a maximum of drills in passivity and obedience, those tools once served the factory economy well, are now unable to help us produce the much different kind of citizens needed for the dangerous future ahead. Rule-driven schooling gave the countries which practiced it the most docile, predictable, and manageable populations on earth, a joy for the leaders of business and government. The schooled can always be counted on to do as they're told. But in the globalized 21st century, the dogged persistence of lockstep pedagogy is economically worrisome. Too many zombies are making us uncompetitive because our, our competing nations have lots more zombies than we have. The answer from policy circles about this problem that's emerging has been we must have even more of the same. More hours, more days, more homework, more tests, more college, a more coercive transfer of officially approved curriculum designed to make the classrooms teacher-proof. In this recommendation, critical thinking and artistic expression and actual applications of learning have been pronounced irrelevant, a waste of time. But what if, just what if, regimented schooling is the disease making us sick and not its cure? My inspiration for 30 years of classroom teaching was the rite of passage of Australian Aborigines in which a young fella grows up on a long and solitary walk full of marvels and dangers. He comes to know himself on this walk. And that's why I call this talk Walkabout, and I call it Walkabout London because a walking adventure at age four changed the life of Sir Richard Branson as he tells it in his autobiography, Losing My Virginity, which I found on an airplane seat <laughs> and read on the way to somewhere, Budapest or something. Branson was four years old out on a ride with mother, miles from home in London, when Mrs. Branson stopped the car and asked four-year-old Richard whether he thought he could find his way back from where they were. Just take a second and put yourself in four-year-old Richard's place and then in Mrs. Branson's. Yes, he said, whereupon mother told him, well, get out and do so then, and she drove off. <laughs> My mother was determined to make us independent, Branson remembered 
to a magazine reporter 52 years after the event. That was in last month's New Yorker magazine in the States. Once he got home, he could never submit easily to institutionalization again. Eventually, he dropped out of high school, skipped college entirely, and had his first important business at age 19 while his friends were still college undergraduates. Branson considers that walk to be the most important lesson of his life. Just try to store that in your mind to reflect on. But we all know dropouts are dead ducks, right? There might be one exception here and one there. They're dead ducks, right? You hear that daily in the States. Branson's walkabout and the dirt farmer savvy of Shen Wen Rong, who had no schooling at all, are things more easily achieved, obviously, outside school than in. That's the common historical experience of mankind. It helps to explain why it took almost all of recorded history before factory schooling came about. There's not a single syllable about school in the American Bill of Rights. Forced schooling wasn't considered a right worth having, although guns were. I couldn't agree more. I hear all the time these days, I'm president of a gun club, I hear, <laughs> I hear all the time these days the people who don't graduate high school are ruined. Those without college are doomed to be flunkies lifelong. Yet something puzzles me. America's two best presidents, by everybody's standard, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, had almost no school at all, and neither had any college. And America's two most potent industrial titans, John D. Rockefeller, and Andrew Carnegie were from the same unschooled tree. Thomas Edison, who gave us the electric light, dropped out of elementary school. The head of the Human Genome Project right now, which has to be far and away the most prestigious scientific job on Earth, didn't see the inside of a classroom until high school, he followed a perfect open source learning method with his homeschooling mother and his homeschooling brothers. I hope someone bothered to tell you that. But Francis Collins, who has a book out now, uh, Francis Collins, learned self-mastery and intellectual power and flexibility in a homeschooling situation with his four brothers, they followed no pattern at all, except if they were gonna change a subject, all four brothers of four different ages had to agree, and then they were off to the races. No attempt to have a balanced diet, no concentration on science or anything else. They followed their hearts. This is the number one scientist in the world, regardless of what 
some academic from a university may tell you, every corporation on earth is lined up to get something from the Human Genome Project. By the way, for what it's worth, he's a born-again Christian, even though he was raised as an atheist. When he was in college, he said the decision became intellectually inescapable. It's just fascinating. He makes the other scientists very nervous. <laughs> so, in, now we're going to get to that lady who was a legend in the MIT admissions office. On April of this year, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal both carried front page stories about the firing of MIT's legendary admissions director, Marilee Jones, who had held the top spot at MIT for 10 years and was there for 28 years. For the first 18, she was a specialist sent to raise the number of women going to this big time technical college. She caught my own daughter, it bankrupted us. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, she tripled the number of women at MIT, and then they gave her the top job, and for 10 years, as the papers say, she was a legend all over the country as a leader in the college admissions field. And MIT gave her the highest honor they had for a school administrator, their Excellence Award for Leading Change. So why was this superstar Fired. Well, on her original job application 28 years ago, she claimed three college degrees. But what she was actually doing, instead of going to college, she was a torch singer. Think of that for a moment. I, I hope that expression translates to Australian. Okay. A torch singer is somebody who, while you're having your fifth drink, tries to make you burst into tears, singing about unhappy love affairs and broken hearts. And some of them are really good. <laughs> I guess Marilee was really good because she invented three college degrees, MIT, bought it hook, line, and sinker, and she revolutionized the admissions process there and all over the United States with no prior training, no academic record. Now, according to the New York Times, these are quotes, she was beloved, almost revered, and the Wall Street Journal said she was considered irreplaceable. Even the man who fired her acknowledged that she was superb. That was MIT Chancellor Philip Clay who told the press the door was now closed to another Miss Jones. In the future, we will take a big lesson from this experience, he said. A big lesson. You'll forgive me for being rude, but the president of MIT is clearly too stupid to see the real lesson in the Jones affair. The degrees are paper with no power whatsoever to signal merit. Whoever they get to replace this woman will certainly be inferior to the woman they fired. That's the lesson I get from Mr. Clay. 
Quality resides in your ability to add value to your community. And on that score, Torch Singer Jones gets A plus and bureaucrat Clay gets an F. Judging people on merit, not titles, would seem to be the most efficient attitude as well as the most honorable, but the cancerous growth of test-driven schooling since the end of World War II is a return to the medieval outlook of scholasticism. That's 600, 700, 800 years ago, whereby the godly are deduced through faith-based syllogisms like honors degrees. Unfortunately for degree holders, real merit still demands visible works, not abstract paper promissory notes. In the modern through the looking glass universe, Miss Jones lacked enough paper credentials to justify her high position, but through the fog of credential sickness, I hope you can see that Jones proves that a dropout is a dead duck only if he or she believes the propaganda. You may be interested to know when school certificates and college degrees were first connected to work. It came about in a German military state called Prussia in the year 1763 when the head of the political state, Frederick, King Frederick, decided he wanted to create a new job category called school teacher and school administrator and you know he wanted to multiply by a factor of 10 or 20 uh, the people who had work in colleges, and the public didn't bite, you know, so he invented the jobs, but nobody bought the service. So he changed the rules. He said that you can't have a job without one of these diplomas or certificates. So dropping out of school does not mean dropping out of education. We're talking here about one and a quarter million people a year in the United States who drop out, and perhaps 10 times that number who would like to drop out if reasonable alternatives were offered. The reason this is, isn't possible is ugly. Schooling itself is the biggest employer in the civilized world when all associated forms of support labor are factored in. It's the major contract giver. When attendance dips, jobs are dumped, and contracts are lapsed. No wiener roast without the wieners. The minute you take your blinders off and see schooling as a jobs project, you will know why dropouts are despised. And there's another reason just as strong. Dropouts represent an unpredictable X factor, a potential fifth column 
to management because they have been insufficiently conditioned to accept standardization. The prejudice is understandable in a short-sighted way, but over the long haul, an economy so dysfunctional, it compels its citizens to accept services neither wanted nor needed is a bed of procrustes which spells trouble for the nation. Every school day in America, 7,000 students walk away and they don't look back in spite of all the propaganda. Several million more fake illness every day. Should all of these people be dragged back screaming and jammed into classroom cells with others who, in theory at least, want to be there? If that had been done to Abraham Lincoln, who didn't go to school at all, would his spirit have survived to become Abraham Lincoln? He was our Civil War president who freed the slaves. Some say it's only fair to force attendance because kids don't realize that without certificates, you can't find opportunity. But where that is true, it's only true because law and prejudice make it so. Think of Marilee Jones at MIT, with three degrees have made her a better admissions counselor. How is that possible? Better that you send all the admissions counselors into nightclubs to be torch singers for a few years. Now think of the filthy slum urchin, Lula da Silva, grown to the presidency of Brazil without a certificate. Brazil, the nation which next year will be the first nation on earth to be energy independent of that stuff coming out of the ground. Think of Lula when they tell you, you have to have school certificates. Think of Hitler, a penniless gutter snipe from Linz, Austria, who could not make the cut at art school, so for want of anything better to do, rose like a meteor to dominate Germany, the most formally educated nation on earth. Does this not reveal something vital about PhDs and specialists and the obedient in general? How did these folks figure things out without a teacher to tell them what to do? Think of John D. Rockefeller who floated the future on a sea of oil or the Wright brothers who taught us to fly. What effect should these facts and thousands more just like them have on our unexamined assumptions about seat time in classrooms or about college degrees? If you can get a dropout to talk to you, you'll be told that school is a liar's world, that it has nothing real to teach, and whatever can be memorized inside can be memorized outside. Are they wrong to say this? Coke Stevenson, who many believe to be the best governor 
in 20th century Texas history, grew up in the no man's land of South Texas before World War I. It's a place very like Australia's outback. Coke had a one-man overland freight business taking cattle and goods to and from a railhead 90 miles away, fording three rivers through Bandito country. If you need models to understand open source, Governor Coke Stevenson's a good one. He taught himself so much through self-reliance in the Badlands that one day he decided to become a lawyer, but he didn't go to law school. Instead, he lay on his belly on a grassy hill near the state capitol in Austin, reading cases on his own, and when he felt ready, he took the bar exam, passed it, and argued himself in history. There's still a couple of American states, California's one of them, where you can do that. It used to be, of course, that everybody did, or everybody who wanted to did it that way. Abraham Lincoln became a lawyer that way. Thomas Edison, the holder of 1,003 patents, was a 12-year-old train boy on a long-distance train running the length of Michigan far from his home by using all his wits and his small earnings to best advantage. He owned two small businesses by the time he was 13, a grocery store and a newsstand. That made three streams of revenue in his pockets, if you consider his salary as a train boy. At 16, he was publishing a newspaper, carrying up-to-the-minute news of Civil War battles using the train company's telegraph. The London Times called it the first journal ever printed on a train in motion. He eventually became patron saint of the electric light, electric power, and music on demand, the phonograph. As for a college degree, Edison pronounced it, I quote, a meaningless credential. With the coming of the internet, a growing number of intelligent young men and women find school a dead letter. By contrast with school, the net offers uncontrolled access to uncontrolled information. Let me give you just one example of that. There's a wonderful new book out in the States called The Cigarette Century. I mean, it's as thick as a telephone directory, and it's the inside scoop on the tobacco industry. But in the beginning of the book, the author says that he had given up trying to get any inside information because the tobacco industry wouldn't cooperate and he was going to cut and paste from newspaper articles. Then someone told him, <coughs> I clear my throat, that on the Internet there were 40 million pages of private tobacco company documents that had been forced to light in the discovery process in court trials, and he went there, it would have taken him 40 lifetimes. That's probably why the book's so thick. In such a climate as now exists, privileged information 
melts like ice in the sun. Education thrives, but formulaic schooling is a dead man walking. The reason we force school is wrapped up in invisible assumptions that important people hold about ordinary people. It would take a long, long speech to tease out all the strands, but the main themes are easy enough to see and they're very, very important for you to know. In every age, the powerful are convinced that ordinary people, particularly their children, are dangerous and have to be controlled. I'm going to give you a few examples of this, but I guarantee you, if you had six hours, I could give you example after example. In 1535, John Calvin wrote that the great mass of people were damned before birth by God and nothing could redeem them. Forget sin and redemption. That was the Roman Catholic idea. Now there was only sin, no redemption. And Calvin was a lawyer, so in this enormous book, the last edition published in 1535, which I'll bet would be in a library in Brisbane. Uh, I mean, he nails it down, just exactly what the damned are capable of, and they overwhelm the saved, and no amount of good deeds can convert you from one to the other. No amount of prayer, nothing can change your destiny if you're damned. What then to do with these sinners who greatly outnumbered the saved? The answer was to teach them to police themselves through intricate nets of rules and regulations, rewards and punishments, habits and attitude training. In this fashion, the damned can be alienated from themselves and from their natural allies. Calvin had, of course, invented familiar institutional schooling. In 1670, this will be even more hair-raising. Benedict Spinoza, who's carried in most libraries as Baruch Spinoza, but he never signed his name Baruch Spinoza. He signed it Benedict Spinoza. He was a secular Dutchman hit on the same pessimistic outlook as Calvin. Their differences are only cosmetic. For secular Spinoza, the damned were just a silly superstition. But the dangerously irrational, capital I, were everywhere, and just exactly like the damned, there was no way to cure their irrationality. Spinoza, I'm going to give you the title of the book, and if you, if you ever take a deep breath and get the book, really, even if you're bald, the hair will stand up on your head. Uh, the book's called Tractatus Theologico Politicus, but he's a, quite a clear writer. Uh, it was read in the British colonies of North America by leaders. It was read in leadership circles for centuries to come. I'm going to come back to, to uh, Spinoza in a minute. 
because when you hear exactly what he designed schooling to do, you will recognize your familiar schools. 150 years later in northern Germany, Johann Fichte, a philosopher, picked up Spinoza's warning and he resonated it through Prussian schooling. The Prussian schooling is the world's first successful institutional schooling. There any other that you stumble upon in a, school, a book of school history, they're all fakes. They were laws passed. Nobody had the bad sense to follow those laws. But Prussia used bayonets to march people into the cells. So it worked in Prussia and from all over the world, as far away as Japan, people came to study how Prussia did it and why they did it. And the founder of United States schooling, Horace Mann, begged the school committee back home to bring Prussian schooling to the United States. Anyway, so Fichte, uh, Fichte demanded this be done, and I'll get to the specific demands in a few minutes because they're worth hearing. Uh, then, a few decades later, a scientific psychologist named Wilhelm Wundt, very, very famous in the history of psychology, you know, lab experiments on rats, stuff like that. He said that people were only flesh and blood machinery, nothing more, and that most of the machinery was defective and could not be repaired. It could only be adjusted to protect the leaders from their populations. Now notice that Wundt is coming at this, there's nothing to be done from one angle. Spinoza's coming at it from another angle that most of us are crazy and we can't be fixed. Calvin came at it from a religious angle and Calvin's reformation went everywhere. It was the reason for the settling of the northeastern United States. Uh, so Prussian pedagogy spread swiftly through France and Britain, then it leaped over the Atlantic into the United States. In the second half of the 19th century came the killer scientific evidence that most of us are hopeless. It came in the form, I know this is gonna surprise some of you, but I guarantee you that the book the information is contained in will be in every library in Brisbane. How about that? First, let me tease you just a little bit, and I almost never do this. Are, are, how many of you in the audience, can I see your hand, are derived on either side or both from Irish parents? Oh good, you're gonna just love this. And anybody from Italian parents on either side? A few. And anybody from Spanish parents? A few. Okay, oh you Irish, you're in for a wonderful treat. 
and, and I want you to demand that this book be taken out of the libraries and burned publicly because Charles Darwin, who taught in every school on planet Earth, his deadly classic, The Descent of Man, think of the metaphor, The Descent of Man, which was published in the United States in 1871, says that the great mass of humanity is biologically degraded and no training can improve that at all. Here we got a different angle on things. Can't be improved. Entire segments of the human race, like the Irish, the Italians, and the Spanish, are biological disaster areas. <laughs> the romantic concept of education is a biological impossibility. How about that? You didn't know Mr. Darwin was up to this trick. <laughs> I, mean, I just have to laugh being Italian and Irish. <laughs> uh, worse, now this is really worse. If the degraded breeding stock, if the degraded breeding stock mated with the advanced breeding stock, evolution would march backwards into the swirling mists of the dawnless past. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> there had to be some way to keep the good stuff away from the Irish and the Spanish and the Italians. And really, there are a whole lot of others as well. Those are just the three that I thought would bring a smile to your lips. Every library in the world has the book, The Descent of Man. This message burned its way into the minds of the governing classes everywhere. I mean, if you were a responsible person and you weren't biologically degraded, psychologically degraded, religiously degraded, or, or, or a flawed piece of machinery, well, what would you do to protect your own pure uh, descendants? I mean, you'd have to do something, wouldn't you? Well, one of the, there are about 16 things. If you read my book, The Underground History of American Education, you'll find a baker's dozen of things that were done. Suddenly, a new invention called country clubs sprung up. That's a minor one. Uh, private boarding schools, of which there had been very, very few in England, and, and a tiny number in the United States, suddenly flourished by the hundreds. All of this was to keep the good stuff away from the bad stuff, which basically means the Irish. Uh, no, 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 it's a lot of, lot of people, but the Irish are the worst. <laughs> You've got to read the book and demand it be taken out of the school. Listen, you'll be headlines all over the world. If I weren't so old and didn't have other things to do, this would be my project. So if there was ever a noble reason to crack down on ordinary people, Darwin served it up with Descent of Man. At the beginning of the 20th century, the president of Indiana University in the United States personally taught 
an elite seminar course called Bionomics in which strategies to prevent the breeding of the unfit were discussed. Anybody ever hear the term bionomics? You would think it was 100 years ago it's died out, and so did I. But six years ago, I was invited to a fancy hotel in San Francisco to give a talk at the sixth annual bionomics conference sponsored by the Cato Institute, the libertarian think tank, in Washington, D.C., what's bionomics, I said, innocently enough. Uh, well, it's a way to keep the Irish under control. <laughs> this college president who taught this course has a name that's legendary in American college history. It's David Starr Jordan, not legendary for being president of Indiana University, but a couple of years later, a world-famous college called Stanford was founded in California, called the Harvard of the West in the States, and he was invited to be the first president of Stanford. He remained there for 30 years, and he pulled out of his bionomics class his star pupil with the silly name Elwood P. Coverley to be the first dean of teacher education at Stanford. And from that position, Coverly became easily the most important American schoolman of the 20th century. He organized executive jobs all over the country. You couldn't get a job unless one of Coverly's scouts had tabbed you from your college performance as willing to play the game. The principal purpose of schooling was to keep the evolutionarily degraded under tight wrap. Had lots of other purposes too, none of which were educational. <laughs> anyway, so. In by, by 1909, Coverly was, for all practical purposes, the official historian of American schooling, and he remained in that position for 50 years. He was a close friend of James Bryan Conant, the president of Harvard, for 30 years. So you can see how this, this small inner circle really spread out and, if I could use a somewhat loaded word, infected everyone with the idea of priorities in schooling. It didn't infect principals and superintendents because they're flunkies, the truth is. They're hired to make sure the classrooms remain teacher-proof. Uh, so these hidden gushers, remember I started this long-winded presentation. I'm going to give you a break in just a minute. So hang, have faith. Uh, these hidden gushers of negative judgment tipped the balance away from open source learning, which was the American genius. And although I know very little about Australia, other than Nicole Kidman, uh, 
and I'd like to know a lot more about her, but I'm too old. <laughs> anyway, I, that's the genius of Australia's open source learning, too. It shifted away from this, which had been very successful, toward the day prison model with the state-prescribed curriculum. Negative assumptions about common human potential explain radical procedures like confinement for the duration of youth, removal of all significant free will choices, the denial of primary experience, the public division of the confined into winners and losers sorted into publicly identified groups of heroes and heroines, dullards or pariahs, and a comprehensive dumbing us down policy spread from elementary school through college. I just have to prove that it spread through college and then you guys get a 12-minute break. Uh, how, how are we doing on time? Because this will be halfway through. I don't want to ruin. Eleanor, where are you? Hi. Okay. I, I, I said spread through college. Let me prove that to you. In the year 2006, one year ago, the University of Connecticut surveyed 14,000 randomly chosen freshmen and 14,000 randomly chosen seniors from 50 American universities to measure the growth of knowledge between the freshman and senior years. Interesting, right? <laughs> and the results are even more interesting. They, they tested these people in the following areas. The market economy, so economics, American history, American government, so political science, and international relations. In 16 of the 50 schools, including Yale, Brown, and Georgetown, three of the most famous schools in the United States, the freshmen knew more than the seniors. And in the other 34, there was no difference. I mean, that hundred or $200,000 that mom and dad paid was literally for the piece of paper, you know, and a lot of hangovers and stuff. Well, we're at the midway point, so please take a break while I wonder how I'm ever going to go to sleep again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That, thanks for sitting through the first half. The second half will be just as long, I'm afraid. <laughs> the keenest of all the minds who set down a plan for the kind of schools that we're all familiar with was this 17th century Dutch philosopher Spinoza. Uh, instead of using the whole name of uh, his book, which I know you all recall is Tractatus 
theologico-politicus. I'm just going to call it the tractate. So his tractate on reshaping civil society in order to stamp out irrationality continues to this moment to have immense influence in what are called policy circles. This is beyond the reach of telly where people sit around and, and plan our fate. And in the fashions of mass schooling, because its central strategy involves destroying the public imagination as a way to control the masses. Spinoza is quite clear that the target is your imagination. Religious thought was a principal villain for Spinoza, but he thought that would be easy to take care of if the government made a great show of support for churches while at the same time it infiltrated the religious inner sanctum to control the myths and illusions it was broadcasting. The public would never be aware that this policy was at work. Does that sound conspiratorial to you? This book is published in 1670. That's 337 years ago. Can you smell the brimstone yet? Spinoza's second proposal led to our familiar school structure. It called for a substitute religion to be created, which he called a civil religion, that's school, to be managed by the political state and its selected agents. That's why you have to have a license from the state to enter the school business. And it was made a compulsory monopoly. In this new institution, the habits, the attitudes, the status, and the ambitions of ordinary folk would be trained under the guise of assisting in personal intellectual development. But habit training and attitude training is what it's about. The rest of it's window dressing. Lastly, the full weight of all social institutions would focus on destroying the inner life of ordinary people so they would lose the power to imagine. And if you lose the power to imagine, you can't think of any effective way to resist management. The methods to do this, as I told you in the first half, have been well known for thousands of years. You only need to read Plato's Republic or his Utopia of the Laws to see that the Greeks were right up to speed on ruining people's inner life if that's what they wanted to do. Uh, the way you do it is through rigid routines and drills, through weakening home authority, through the removal of privacy, through regular interventions into personal time that would otherwise be used for reflection 
and regular interventions into working time. Has it ever crossed your mind, since I know most of you must have attended schools, why when you're working on something, you have to stop when a horn or a buzzer rings and go somewhere else? You might be in the middle of a painting and now you have to stop, march over, and think mathematically, and you may be catching on to an idea, and a horn goes off and you have to go somewhere else. I'm sure it's crossed some of your minds that this is a crazy way to learn anything, not to finish what you start. And yet, this is part of the destruction of your inner life. If you never get to finish, then it's not too exciting to start something new because you know that you're going to be interrupted constantly. So carrot and stick incentives to promote obedience. That's the pat on the head and the gold star and the nice little note on your report card. And plenty of testing to be certain that deviance never gets a foothold. The test, as you'll see in a few minutes, don't measure anything. And this has been known for centuries. Nobody uses the results of the test for anything serious because the test isn't measuring what it seems to measure. But what it does measure is whether you obediently memorized what you were told to memorize. And the people who won't do that have to be punished. With Spinoza, we reach into the beating heart of institutionalized school, schooling. And ironically, if you have any friends who are philosophically inclined, they'll tell you no. Spinoza is a champion of intellectual liberty, and the truth is, for a privileged few, he was. He said about 20% of the population have rational minds, and for them, he wanted intellectual liberty. But for the rest, he's liberty's worst nightmare. Spinoza sentenced the mass population to a lifetime of misdirection, manipulation, and lies. Those aren't my characterizations, they're his. This is the way you deal with irrational people. You lie to them, you manipulate them, and you misdirect their attention. The school empire is his legacy more than anyone else's. As he instructed, subjects exist primarily to inculcate fables which colonize the inner life of the dangerous classes. Isn't that an interesting expression? The reason you're dangerous, unless you're part of the, the good 20%, is there's nothing can be done for your madness. Don't you see? Darwin said there's nothing can be done. And, and Wundt said there's nothing can be done, and Spinoza says there's nothing can be done, and Calvin says there's nothing can be done. But school's a way to misdirect the dangerous classes out of uh, the hair of the good, good stuff.
But this Dutchman was only a theorist. So how did his scheme come alive in human affairs? <coughs> Frederick of Prussia and a professor of philosophy whose name you've now heard, uh, excuse me, yes, Johann Fichte, were the great tacticians who realized Spinoza's design. In 1806, after a humiliating defeat by the professional armies of Prussia at the hands of the amateur armies of Napoleon, Fichte made a series of public demands that are quite famous, they will be in every library uh, in Brisbane, called the Addresses to the German Nation. And in these addresses, which were really orders given to the king, he demanded, I'm quoting, that all Germany be molded into a corporate body. Germany in 1806 was about 160 tiny little countries. There was no hope they would ever unify, although that was the great dream of the Pope, as long as they weren't Protestant <laughs> there. But there was no hope of that. Now Fichte has ordered that they be molded into a corporate body. Then he demanded, I'm quoting, these are his words, not mine, that freedom of the will be completely destroyed. He demanded the inner lives of the young be so thoroughly scrubbed clean of individual will that no student would be even capable of imagining wishes other than the wishes of the state managers. When you encounter men and women or boys and girls who have free time but no idea what to do with that time, who tell you they're bored, you are in the presence of the outcome, the human products of Fichte's design. The point of the new schooling was plain and simple, psychological conditioning, not academics. The routines of the school day is what the school day is about. The rest of it is air and smoke. It's window dressing. The routines are what's being taught. Prussian schooling was past its trial stage by 1819, and soon after that, delegations from all over the world, from as far away as Japan, were visiting to see this new wonder in action. By 1868, the Japanese constitution was the Prussian constitution translated into Japanese. That's how influential Prussian schooling was. And it was brought back to America by Horace Mann. That's a name that resonates, doesn't have to resonate in Australia. He was a jerk. Uh, and it was attempted to be forced on the whole country, but the country wasn't buying. Exactly one state bought into the Prussian system. 
the state of Massachusetts, Boston, Massachusetts, where the Puritans had settled, they bought into it, and for the next 15 years, no other American state followed suit, and the government in Washington was busy bribing everyone they could. That's how governments get things done, subsidizing this or that project, but it took 15 years before one other state followed suit. And at the end of the First World War, it took that long before America swallowed the whole Prussian bait. During World War II, Prussian schooling scored its knockout blow. It put critical reading ability to death with the assistance of key universities, book publishers, and friends in high places. Germany provided the heavy weapon in the form of something known as the whole word system of learning to read, which in this part of the world is associated with New Zealand and its schooling. Prior to the introduction of the German whole word system, where you actually study the language like hieroglyphics, you memorize whole words. In Germany, it was, first they tried the whole paragraph system, and that was too much to swallow. Then the whole sentence system, and that was pretty much too much to swallow. But the whole word, good. You can memorize a few thousand words, and you can seem to be able to read as long as you don't encounter new stuff. When you encounter new stuff, you are helpless. If you were able to pronounce the new stuff, in your mind might very well be a meaning or a half meaning that you had heard. But with the whole word system, you can't pronounce the new stuff. In the former system, which was called the alphabet system, you break the language into 44 sight-sound correspondences. It's a little painful to memorize those, but it doesn't take more than 90 days. At that point, the truth is you can read anything on earth, including Spinoza's tractate Theologico-Politicus. You won't understand it, but reading is two separate processes. First is cracking the sound code, and then the understanding and the mastery is a separate undertaking. Now, put yourself back in first, second, or third grade. If Australia is not totally unlike the United States, what the teacher thinks is going on in those classrooms and what's actually going on are wildly different. Those are psychological laboratories. They're filled with tension and energy you're sitting there hoping that the girl in the southeast corner of the room will look your way and smile, and you live in terror as she looked your way and laughed at you. So exactly how bold and brave are you to attempt to sound out 
new words in the face of humiliation that might lead to you being punched out by the bully after class. You're not very enterprising about guesswork at all. And what the whole word system encourages you to do is guess about words. You, see, you don't have to guess if you learn the 44 sight-sound correspondences. I've had kids who never ate off a tablecloth who can stand up at age 13 and flawlessly read from Herman Melville's Moby Dick, probably not a book that's read often in Australia, but it's got to be the hardest American novel ever written. Flawlessly, it's read as well as I can because they know the sights and correspondences. So during cover of the Second World War and with the active help of Washington, D.C., this whole word method was imposed on the entire country. Why? Because to get anything done in the States prior to World War II was difficult because reading was like a national addiction and reading difficult stuff, not detective novels, difficult stuff. You only have to read some of the best-selling novels from the early 19th century to realize, and I've tried this experiment, that elite college students today have great difficulty reading the stuff. The sentences are hundreds of words long. They run backwards in the Latinate fashion. They have references, allusions to science and religion and politics and history. I mean, uh, the trouble is all my examples are, are U.S. examples. Uh, does uh, Last of the Mohicans bring any sort of... You pick up Last of the Mohicans, make sure it's unexpurgated, and see what ignorant, unschooled farmers and their kids were reading in 1819. I mean, you'll faint. The book is, is like a PhD thesis at Harvard. And it sold the modern equivalent of five million copies. Uh, Thomas Paine's uh, Common Sense, which probably was the single most provocative trigger that caused the American Revolution to kick out Great Britain, and which is read today in graduate colleges by elite classes, sold the equivalent of one copy for every living human being in the United States prior to the American Revolution. There were 600,000 free people, not, not in slavery, and there were 600,000 copies of common sense sold. It wasn't a big time for rule-driven schooling, I can tell you, but people didn't have trouble with what elite college classes have trouble with today. I mean, the gulf between what you're capable of and what you're actually conditioned to do is vast. I mean, it's one of the reasons I really am in awe of, of the contract you've written for yourself. 
that you're going to do it. You're going to mix from, from this open source possibility. Anyway, let me get off soft soaping you and back to the drudgery. <laughs> okay. So they destroyed American reading ability. Reduced to drudgery, which whole word does, reading becomes a chore reserved for functional situations like business. Whole word readers are unlikely ever to be moved to read serious stuff. For example, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars were read when I was growing up in a coal mining town during World War II. It was read in seventh grade. I have not in 15 years of traveling around ever encountered a contemporary class, including the most aristocratic, that reads Caesar's Gallic Wars. And some people being defensive say, well, we don't have time for that luxury of ancient Roman writing. Let me show you the degree to which you're bamboozled. Caesar's Gallic Wars is an absolute requirement of elite inner circle boarding schools, an absolute requirement, not because they want to uh, put on the dog about having read Julius Caesar, but Caesar took a small army into what modern France is today. They were outnumbered 50 to 1 by perfectly brave, skilled warriors. 50 to 1, they were outnumbered, and they smeared those people into the ground. How did they do it? Not by killing 50 for every one they lost. Caesar invented a principle called divide and conquer, where you set people who should be allies against one another. You set them competing for little prizes, like top grade in the school or something, and you destroy this natural bond between them. Then you throw your favor first to one side, then to the other, and they kill one another. These days, figuratively, in those days, literally, Caesar didn't have to conquer Gaul. Gaul conquered itself. That's why you read Caesar's Gallic Wars. In seventh grade in a coal mining town, I read it in English translation. In ninth grade in a coal mining town, I had the option, as did everyone else, of reading it in Latin. Gallia est omnis duis in partes tres. Quorum unum in colon belgae. Aliam aquitani. Qui absorb, thanks God. Nostra Gallia Palantur. I could go a little bit farther, but not much more. But at one time, I could take you through the whole chapter. Ninth grade in a coal mining town. Well, what on earth use is it to be able to read it in Latin? I'll tell you what it used. Latin's the basis for all of the Romance languages. It instantly gooses positively your ability to understand and see the bones in 
French or English or Spanish or Italian. It's tremendously useful. Also, you get to be an altar boy in the Catholic Church, and they have the sacramental wine, and you can always find out where they keep the key. Well, <laughs> no, they threw me out, too. So. so that's why you read Caesar's Gallic Wars, and then you're able to read Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Well, why would you want to read the meditations of a Roman emperor? I'll tell you why it's still in print thousands of years after it was written and why it's absolutely de rigueur in every elite private boarding school. The richest man in the world and the most powerful man in the world says that nothing you can buy is worth much. It's worth a little, but not much. And to the extent that you're addicted to buying things to feel good, you're a prisoner of your appetites. And the most powerful man in the world says, nothing you can compel someone else to do is worth doing. Because when you turn your back, some of these people will kill you. Now, can you see why the lessons of Caesar and Marcus Aurelius wouldn't be the kind of lessons that a hierarchical, top-heavy society wanted you to know. I mean, why would the CEO of a great corporation wish employees to know how you divide and conquer the employees by dangling one promotion in front of 16 people to see who's willing to sacrifice their family and lots more in order to have a chance to get it. And why, if they don't get it, they have to be fired right away or gotten rid of or marginalized. Or and you can see that what's locked up in the great classics is absolutely a set of revolutionary keys to free yourself from the propaganda of spin doctors, we call it in the United States. It's probably a, is that term here too? Okay. You're free of the spin doctors and nobody, nobody wants you to be free of those because now you're not trustworthy. Well, don't ever let an Italian step away from the script or we'll be here days from now. All right. Uh, let me just reconnect with this script. The, the most efficient way to secure your complicity in, in this situation is to teach you to voluntarily neutralize your own potential power. This is one of the primary missions of mass schooling. As Calvin said, to make you your own jailer. Its most useful tool besides forced attendance is testing, which actually measures little. And believe it or not, in the next 10 minutes, I'm going to 
prove that to you so that it's not just an opinion. Uh, its principal value is convincing you to believe its verdicts and so reduce your own presence in many settings. No compelling correlation has ever been shown between test scores and real-world accomplishments. I know that's hard to believe, but I must have spent two years in the dullest reading. There actually aren't very many big-time uh, correlations run because they cost too much money, but there have been about 90 of them in the last 100 years. Some of them actually come up negative. That is, the better you do on tests, the worse you do. But most of them, it's simply no correlation. Tests predict several things accurately. They predict what your grade will be on the next test. They're very good at that. And obviously, they measure how obedient you've been in memorizing what you were told to memorize. But past that, the cupboard is bare. Now, here comes the first set of proofs. Has anyone in this audience ever even thought of asking their accountant, their architect, their engineer, their doctor, their house painter, their attorney, or their barber for their test scores? Or the but, but, but wait a minute, if these are actually important measures of ability, why not? Shouldn't you demand that every classroom and administrative office in Australia post the test scores of the paid employees within? Don't your kids deserve this protection? Now, even to ask that perfectly natural set of questions, which nobody does, exposes the rot underneath the tranquil surface. Schools use the term achievement in a way that fans of George Orwell should recognize as newspeak. Think of achievement tests. Is that expression used in Australia, achievement tests? Very common in the States. What, what achievement? In science, for instance, achievement occurs in the following limited number of ways. It occurs when you discover something. It occurs when you amend somebody else's discovery. It occurs when you expose what was thought to be true as false or thought to be false as true. And finally, it occurs when you waste a significant amount of your time following a dead end but keeping careful records about your failure so somebody else doesn't have to waste time on the same dead end. Outside of those four categories, there is no achievement. Achievement tests are a scam and the same performance demands can be constructed for every subject area and in none except by accident is achievement ever measured. Sports teams have achievements and failures. 
but social studies classes never. School science is not science. It's a form of received religion under a different name. Use your head. How could you maintain a stable society if you had millions of people running around discovering the secrets of nature or learning how power actually works? In five minutes, actually in about 90 seconds, I could teach you how to build the very bomb which ruined the London subways a few years back. The material is on open shelves in every hardware store in Australia, and it costs less than $100. You see what I mean? Shall I do it? Would you like to know how to make that bomb? I don't know why not, <laughs> but I won't teach you if you... I learned how to make the bomb from reading the Financial Times, you know, that inner circle money paper that's sort of an orange color. I got about three quarters of the formula from the Financial Times editorial page and the rest of it from an ad in the New York Times by an Israeli company that was selling a, a mechanical sniffer device they could sniff that kind of bombs. But I'm telling you, if you worry about things like gun control, the stuff that's in your hardware store, less than $100, that was an awful lot of damage, correct? It only weighed six pounds. And the trigger device is a cell phone, no shortage of those in Australia. If you think I'm skeptical about the value of tests, what about Harvard? Now, in the United States, usually when we speak of elite universities, you mention, there's probably 20 in all, but you mention four. You mention Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Stanford. But they say there's another 16. In 2006, that was last year, Harvard turned down 1,100 applicants with perfect standardized test scores. That is, those people sacrificed their youth and mom and dad's money, and they achieved perfect scores. They didn't get in. It also rejected 80% of all the valedictorians who applied in the United States, is that term valedictorian in use? In a, it's the person with the very highest grade point average in a school. So there's one to a school. Princeton did the same thing. Yale did the same thing. All the selective colleges did this. What did the rejects miss? Isn't it obvious what they missed? They overrated tests and they underrated actual achievement. A spokeswoman for Caltech, which next to MIT is the premier tech school in the United States, said this. She said, successful applicants create a new computer system for the high school 
or they take a tractor apart and put it back together again all by themselves. You sort of see how the big-time power game is played. They're no more fooled by test scores than you are when you contract for a service. And if you think this can't be true, just force yourself, ask your husband or your wife what their standardized test scores or their grade point average are. Don't let your kids hang out with friends who have inferior scores because, you know, you judge by the company. You I mean, it's insane. Nobody uses this information. Who counts? So tests aren't tests at all. They're drills. They're part of a psychological training package which controls the behavior of the unsuspecting. The ultimate goal is to establish and perpetuate a hierarchy. You have to be made to feel that you failed. You know, we can only accept people who made these cutoff points on tests. Well, why is that if there's no correlation between performance? Because it's administratively one way to separate the winners from the losers as long as you believe it. The, the next part's called the invention of adolescence, and I mean that. Now, keep Richard Branson in mind. He's selling tickets on a moon rocket he's building at the present, and he's got about $22 billion, so he must know something. The people we call children in the United States were exactly the same sovereign human beings who cleared a wild continent, whipped Great Britain twice, built roads, canals, cities and towns, drove out the French and Spanish, invented an endless stream of new technologies, released a storm of creativity over every aspect of American life, and jettisoned the phony concept of adolescence. I repeat, the phony concept of adolescence. It's not a scientific discovery. It's invented by one jerk with a long beard in about the year 1902. The best American education never followed a formula. It was always custom mixed from a broad palette of opportunities. The real American dream was always the creation of an independent livelihood so you didn't have to be a wage slave. Good jobs were for jerks for most of American history. Furthermore, most of American history was British colonial history and the British wouldn't allow you to have a good job unless you were an Anglican. But school aimed at a different target. School aims at an interdependent economy populated with incomplete men and women who wait for a teacher of one sort or another to tell them what to do. Factory-driven economies 
and the finance-driven economy, which has almost replaced it in the United States, finds people with minds of their own to be intolerable. I mean, am I telling you something that you really don't know in your heart of hearts? Lives assigned to obeying orders are best kept childish, since Plato, intellectuals have worked to figure out how best to engineer incomplete lives susceptible to management, just as children are. I mean, we don't have an exception to that in the long two millennia history of utopias. They're all about childish people. All of the systems are about making the bulk of the population childish, for their own good, of course. Long-term confinement is the foundation. Once legislation compels attendance, all else follows naturally, although it was no picnic even with the law in the United States, because we had had a couple of centuries of forgetting basically childhood after the age of seven, you were human beings. I, I might have thought twice about Mrs. Branson's at the age of four, but certainly by the age of seven, you're dealing with a human being, male or female. By the age of 12, you're dealing with a man and a woman and attempting to keep them on one of these artificial stage theories of growth is a good way to create the problems that you then hire specialists to help you solve. So long-term confinement is the foundation. And when that was imposed on the United States, beginning in 1852 in the state of Massachusetts, let me tell you what happened. Nobody who studies school history in a teacher's college gets to hear this, but let me tell you, the books are filled with this. And Canada was exactly the same way. Uh, the grief found expression through riots, arson, dynamitings of schools, teachers, quote, beaten to a jelly. Inside the institution, violence in the form of student-inflicted terror was common then as now, such in-house violence served the school uh, purpose well. How could violence serve the school purpose well? Well, let me connect the dots for you. It divides students from one another if the only relief from terror is to appeal to the adult authority. And if you attempt to defend yourself, you get in trouble. We have Caesar's divide and conquer working at a nice clip. Violence is a friend of institutional schooling. Our president during the First World War, Woodrow Wilson, had as his closest advisor a fellow named Edward House, H-O-U-S-E. And if you asked your librarian, to get you a copy of House's autobiography, you will discover that House 
at the age of nine always went to school with a loaded revolver and a sharp knife. He said the people who could not defend themselves, the horrible things that happened are beyond the belief of parents. One trick in house of school was to hang people who couldn't defend themselves until their faces turned purple and then you cut them down. We're talking about a history of movement toward enlightenment through institutional schooling, which is an absolute bald-faced lie. Now, those who authorized this artificial extension of childhood believed, as you now know, <coughs> excuse me, that it justly fit the biological realities, thanks to Mr. Darwin, that it was a kindness to the inferior biology. By making management more effective, it made the economy more profitable. And the truth is, that was true. That was a half-truth in a factory economy. If people can't argue with the boss, because they don't have the imagination to argue with the boss, the factory works a lot more uh, efficiently. If gross national product was the only yardstick, the contention is half true, but the other half is quite troubling. Under universal schooling, the purchasing power of an average American worker's income fell in half over the past 100 years. In 2007, it takes two working parents to maintain the standard possible for one working American parent in 1907. That information is from Johns Hopkins University, which is quite an elite uh, college in America. Even more devastating, inventiveness as measured by our patent office applications declined by 67% over the same period of institutional schooling. And I want to remind you that in Spinoza, such imaginative schooling or unimaginative schooling is a sign that school is doing its job. But it's the economic order which initiated our style of dumbed-down schooling declined the bankrupted imaginations and extended childhoods, which once served well, grew to be a burden on the nation's ability to sustain its large middle class. We only keep a large middle class in the United States by borrowing sums of money that are inconceivable from China, India, uh, Malaysia, Japan. It, all of the American taxes collected, every penny of them, is just barely sufficient to pay the interest on the national debt, not to reduce it at all, to pay the interest. Okay. The America which inspired other nations for 200 years, and I think you guys are going to have to take over that job, was a place 
without the term human resources, you want to break people's nose who use that term, or workforces, you want to punch them in the gut for that term. Those are two metaphors created by minds diseased beyond hope of redemption. You're nobody's human resource, and you're not part of a workforce. You're a sovereign spirit. You're a human being. So America was a place that held out the promise that anybody who came there could self-design. You could write your own script. We didn't give up that dream naturally, although it's almost gone in the States, except among the homeschoolers. It was taken away from us by social engineers with other goals in mind, chief among them efficient social control under a system of scientific management. The beginning of the 20th century, after casting about for a credible, a believable strategy behind which Spinoza, Darwin, Wundt and company could hide, the pseudoscience of pedagogy invented a condition called adolescence, which justified forced confinement schooling as a scientific necessity, a kindness to those deprived of responsible lives. By keeping the young from any useful role in making society work, as George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or Thomas Edison had, they all had useful roles in their society by the age of 11, not Oh, that's nice, darling, useful roles. Useful roles. They were expected to carry their share of the load, and they did. Childhood can be extended far beyond its natural scope, even extended forever. Those who educate themselves are difficult to manage. Well-schooled people are not. The narrative of American history strongly contradicts the concept of adolescence. And so history itself had to be rewritten to conceal the fraud being peddled. What might happen if the model kids had to look at was the model of Andrew Carnegie? Is that a name that means? Okay. He was the first billionaire in American history, and he bought himself 7,000 acres in Scotland and built a castle that's still there. And his foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, is one of the key pillars that hold up American schooling right now. Carnegie moved from, now try to put yourself in this position, and you'll really have some fun with this. He moved from a foreign country at the age of five with an accent so thick that people couldn't understand him. His parents could not find work. They lived in a ghetto and barely were able to keep food on the table. He dropped out of school, I believe at age seven, to become a, bo a bobbin boy 
in a garment factory, and he did that for a number of years to bring in some money so the family could eat in this ghetto near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And at the age of 12, he saw an ad for telegraph operators on the big railroad of the day, the Pennsylvania Railroad, and he taught himself. I mean, he worked 18 hours a day, so he, was, he really had the language down, and he got himself a job as a telegraph operator at the age of 12. No schooling. Still a thick Scottish accent. How do you imagine that by the age of 20, that's eight years, he became a business partner of the president of the railroad? There's a brand new biography on Carnegie out, and I know your librarian can get it for you. It's really worth reading, and you'll get some idea how the brainwashing that we've gone through for the past 100, 120 years has kept us the prisoners of our own children, the jailers of our own children. So anyway, he's in a business partnership at 20. He has the equivalent of a couple million a year coming in 10 years later from passive investments and so he sets out to conquer the world. The list of dramatic examples like Carnegie, if they gave me a week, I could give you one after another. People who did impossible things, impossible things. When I, when I was leaving this morning and hoping against hope that I could go back to bed, I was watching the telly and into one of your harbors, I think Sydney, sailed two blind people who were sailing around the world alone. I, I'm telling you, the miracles that are built into you have been conditioned, not, not, not you as much as the rest of our countries, because you're homeschooling. It takes a lot of courage, a lot of insight. But what you're capable of is written broad across the record of the last couple of centuries. You're just not allowed to look at it. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, America's only four times president, had a C average in high school and a C average in college. John F. Kennedy had a C average in high school and a C average in college. George W. Bush had a C average in high school and a C average in college. The man he beat in the last election, John Kerry, the senator from Massachusetts, had a C average in high school and a C average in college. Al Gore, the great uh, whatever you call it, flunked out of his first college and graduated from his second college with a C minus, but plenty of D's on his report card. Dick Cheney, who's caused an awful lot of trouble, flunked out of college twice. Uh, a name that you won't know, but in the United States by people uh, uh, on the left is considered a, a secular saint, 
Paul Wellstone got an 800 out of a possible 1600 on his national standardized test. That's a 50 in my book. I mean, who are we kidding? America's computer industry arose almost exclusively from men without college degrees. Let me give you just a few of them. Bill Gates has no college degree, and his partner, Paul Allen, who only has $24 billion, the Gates is, I don't know, 50 or something, he has no college degree. He owns the Seattle Seahawks, by the way, who the Pittsburgh Steelers destroyed in the Super Bowl two years ago. I had a big bet on Pittsburgh. Steve Jobs of Apple, where's his college degree? Steve Wozniak of Apple had no college degree when he found co-founded Apple and didn't have one for 10 years. He has one now. Why? Because he thought he'd get an education. No, he had this itch to teach school with his $30 billion, and they won't let him teach school without a college degree. So he went back and got one. Michael Dell of Dell has, I believe, only one course. He said, this is a waste of time. Larry Ellison of Oracle, he doesn't have a college degree. Who are we kidding? Ted Turner, who gave the planet its first worldwide news channel, CNN, dropped out his freshman year, never went back, said it was a waste of time. Warren Avis, who is the creator of auto rentals at airports all over the world, briefly considered college after he got out of the Army in World War II, decided it would be a waste of money and time, and went into inventing the car rental business. Uh, uh, the largest book dealer, book dealer in the United States is a man named Edward Hamilton. He, uh, he took... Uh, three courses, and he wrote me, and he said, uh, the big advantage I had over my competitors, I had all this extra time and money because I wasn't wasting it going to college. Because I asked him, how did you get the, you know, that size? Uh, Sean Fanning, whose creation of Napster at age 18 dealt a body blow to the music industry, which I don't believe it's going to actually recover from. And that's good. I used to be a songwriter. And, and, and who has been hired at age 24 by the music industry he nearly ruined to try to save it, has no degree, and he has no intention of getting one. Lou Wasserman, who more than anyone else on earth created the modern Hollywood, with his MCA talent agency, not only has no college degree, he didn't go to high school, although he has a high school diploma. So how did he get a high school diploma if he didn't attend? Well, he was working as a movie usher. He was registered in high school, but he, he, he wanted to make some money. So he's working as a movie usher from three in the afternoon until midnight and then he wanted to sleep, you know, and have a life, not go to school. So Wasserman goes to the high school principal, and he said, I read in the papers you're in a lot of trouble because you can't afford band instruments and uniforms for the football team. I've got an idea. 
I'll borrow the print of the latest movie. It's sitting there. Nobody's in the movie except me. I got the keys. I'll race it over to the high school. We'll show the latest movie at the high school for a small admissions price. You'll take the money, buy the tubas or whatever, and I'll race the print back. That's how Lou Wasserman got his high school diploma. <laughs> it was a horse trade. Warren Buffett, the world's second richest man, began as a door-to-door -door Coca-Cola salesman at age six. Now we've got somebody who's approaching the magic age four. He was six. It was the Depression. Omaha, Nebraska is like the outback as far as temperature is concerned. There was no air conditioning. So this guy, age six, fills a basket with Coca-Colas and ice, goes from door to door, no trouble selling them, and makes a penny a bottle. Doesn't sound like much, but he progressed by stages. He hired people to do that and gave them half a penny a bottle, and now he's retrieving lost golf balls, first at one course, but when he sets up a deal with the, the club pro to buy the balls that he fishes out of the water hazards in the woods, he then does all the golf courses in Omaha. He's nine, I think. He hires people to do it. He has the contract to sell them. He pays them a fair amount of money. And now he has two streams of revenue. And then what does he do? Well, he reads in the paper that they're actually people, impatient people, at the racetrack who, when their horse is behind, tear their ticket up and storm out of the track, and then their horse wins the race. So Buffett sets up this operation. First, it's just him. He fills garbage bags with discarded tickets, and sure enough, here and there, there's a winner. And then he hires people to collect the stubs and do the sifting under his direction. And now he has another stream of revenue. Now he's, he's 13, I believe. I get all this information from his autobiography. I think he's 13, and he runs away from home. Omaha, Nebraska's in the middle of the United States. It would be like Ayers Rock here, okay? He runs away to Washington, D.C., and he gets a paper route. Now, delivering newspapers is something I did. It's, it's not bad work, but it's, it's not hard. I mean, it's not easy work either, it's so, especially at the beginning when you're carrying around 80 papers is a big route. That's what I had. Warren Buffett didn't deliver 80 papers a day. He delivered 1,500 papers a day. How was that? possible to do. Here's how. Buffett studies the configuration of the nation's capital, finds a section where there's tall apartment buildings with hundreds of families in each building, 
makes a deal with the Washington Post to deliver the newspapers not to the lobby where they are, but to deliver them to the roof. He gets on the elevator, races up to the roof, grabs the papers, comes down, throwing them out as he comes down, goes to the next building. As soon as he's got this perfected, of course, he hires people to do this for him. Now Buffett has four streams of revenue coming in. The Washington Post offered him the job He's a teenager, an early teenager, as, as circulation director, but he knows that jobs are for chumps. <laughs> the next business I just take such pleasure in. He's always looking around to see how he can add value to other people's Lives. You're hot, you're sweaty, you want a nice cold Coca-Cola. You don't want to pay for a new golf ball. Hey, this one's all like new, etc., etc. The next idea he comes up with, I would have made him president of the universe. It used to be, I don't think it is anymore, but it used to be in many places that the barber shop was the center of town. I mean, you'd hang out if you were a kid near the barbershop, the barber would let you because all these people came in. It was, it was like a bar almost. And while they're waiting to get their hair cut, you know, there's a lot of chatter goes on. But Buffett noticed that there were people who had to wait a long time to get a haircut, and maybe they would like to do something like play pinball machine. So here's what Buffett does. Using the yellow pages of the phone directory, he finds businesses that lease pinball machines. Then he goes to the barber shops and he says, I'll install the machine, I'll handle the finances, we'll split 50-50 on the profits, and I'll remove the machine if you don't want it anymore. You'd have to be a fool to say no to that. Costs you nothing. But he's this, you know, this 14, 15-year-old boy. He can't drive the pinball. No, but he finds a trucking service to bring the machines to the barber shops. I mean, at some point, he's got 100 barber shops renting pinball machines to. It's another stream of revenue. Now, I challenge you to find anything, anything at all, in any of the businesses Buffin had working for him that your own kids couldn't do, that you couldn't do. Buffett arrived at the age of 18 with the equivalent. He paid all his own living expenses past, I think, the age of 12. He had... $100,000 in the bank. I mean, it was like 1939 or something. That was a lot of money, you know. There's nothing he did that you couldn't do. My grandfather used to say, making money in business, is, he, he, he had carnivals. and he had, My grandfather had a lot of businesses, but he was a German, though. They, they, they think better than we Italians. <laughs> I know that because Darwin said so. Uh, 
my grandfather said the secret in business is to watch other people and find out what they want. And if you can give them what they want cheaper than somebody else or better than somebody else, or you're the only one offering it, like used golf balls, you know, you'll make money. He said it really is that simple. The key is not thinking what business do I want to go in, it's looking at other people. One of the standard things I did with 12 and 13 year old kids, I had a deal with them. Naturally, I cleared it with their mother, never bothered with their fathers, but I cleared it with their mothers that you could cut school for days or weeks if what you were doing was sizing up the neighborhood or some part of the city and providing evidence for the kind of business you thought that with a little bit of capital, a little bit, you know, under a hundred bucks, that you could get, get underway. I had a, a boy in 1968 who ended up on page two of a major New York newspaper. He was making more money than his mother and father put together, and they were not poor. They had good social service incomes. What was he doing? Well, you could do. He was walking dogs. How is that possible? Well, first of all, it helps if you're in a place where the population's densely packed together you know, big apartment buildings. A lot of dogs in those buildings. Old people like me, we don't feel like riding down 12 floors on an elevator and scooping poop, you know. Now, if you can walk three dogs at a time, and what about people who go on vacation? Who's gonna feed their beloved fish? Their neighbors are sick of doing that. Their mother won't do it either, you know. There's millions of animals to be serviced. It's a natural for young people. And the minute he knew how to do these different jobs, his name Brian Bantry, he became a Broadway producer when he was 21. He had a lot of money. Brian hired other people. I mean, what school kid doesn't want some some money in his kick or her kick, you know? I see five minutes and I have got to hurry. I, wait, I'll skip this part. I'll skip this part. Okay. St. Paul and the Rule Book Dragon. You got, you got to get the last two parts. Five minutes, that's what she said I have. In, in the New Testament, Paul's letters to the congregations, which later would become Christianity, are filled with a fervent plea, which a lot of Christians overlook, to ignore the rules and think afresh. Rules had led the establishment of his time astray, and Paul says repeatedly in the letters, you can't find salvation by following the rules. Think of Shen Wen Rong, steel demolition crew. Think of Marilee Jones at MIT. 
Now, screen the religious content out of that, and what you're left with is a timeless conflict between a traditional establishment, which always makes its bread and butter by keeping things the way they are, and an insurgency, that's you guys, driven by a different logic, one where people are trusted to go their own ways, bound together by affection, not by rules. Paul asks the new congregations to make up the rules as they go along, depending on the situation, like the German officer corps, which was given this license to make up the rules in battle as they went along, not like the Americans who sustained 40% more casualties when they outnumbered the Germans four to one. Uh, so Paul asked the new congregations to do this, and as long as they stay true to the core principles, they can manage themselves by where they want to get, by objectives, not by rules. The same way that a fine chef follows intuition, a pinch of this, a pinch of that, instead of a recipe book. You're guided by the goal you want to achieve. The establishment of Paul's day had a recipe for everything. It was in the business of certainty. If somebody steals, cut off his nose. If somebody commits adultery, stone her to death. My wife said, why her? <laughs> when in doubt, ask the boss. The insurgency followed a logic impossible for recipe book people to comprehend. And I've got to tell you something impossible for many Christians today to comprehend. If somebody steals your coat, give him your cloak. If somebody hits you on one side of the face, turn the other side to be hit as well. Pay the workmen who labor only for the afternoon the same wage as those who work all day. So many people have been made absurd, trivialized, disenfranchised, by the recipe book of schools, colleges, and corporations that a new insurgency is forming all over the world. And here it is in front of me in Brisbane, Australia. The day of the expert is over. The handwriting is on the wall for all institutions, although tyrannies will give them artificial life for a while longer. The young French poet, and I mangle French, so let me try and call him Rambo, but I'm sure that's not the way it's pronounced. Looks like Rimbaud. He said something at age 19 which fits the moment that you and I are living in. He said, this is a time of sweat baths, of oceans boiling, of underground explosions, of the planet world away, of exterminations sure to follow. Article 28 of the French Declaration of the Rights of Man, published in 1789 and inspired by the American Revolution, reads, quote, one generation cannot subject to its law future generations. The existing rituals between childhood and adulthood don't work anymore. We need to think the rules again from scratch. 
the alternative school movement is reaching simultaneously backwards and forwards, back to the better open source way we once had in our grasp before corporate dominance took it away, and forward to a quality of human interconnection suggested by MySpace and Facebook and YouTube that only the young can understand. We need to ask the young about those things. One thing unifies all alternative school practice, including yours. That's a rejection of the formula of institutional schooling. Obedience, memory, disconnected bits of data, fear, threats, enforced passivity, and paper-pencil testing. Even the fat cats are concerned. Forces are on the move around the world which have no sympathy for the unwholesome world of the American-style rich. And while schooling has done its job in removing the danger of disobedience from the ordinary population, it's done that by stripping away the strength from our nation. As I was writing that, I heard on the radio a senior at Virginia Tech a college in America that was the scene of a recent slaughter. And she was declaring on the radio how happy she was to be finally going back to school to take her final examinations. And the interviewer said to her, you're happy to be taking your final examinations? Why? And she said, I hope this sends a chill up your spine to see if I learned anything. Here was a perfect product of Spinoza schooling. She will never be a danger to any important interest, nor will she be of much use when trouble comes. To recover the creativity we once had through voluntary schooling in a voluntary society, we're going to have to abandon forced attendance schooling. Genius has always responded to liberty, not rules. And you have, in fact, abandoned it privately, whether you reinstall it in your home. And this is the end. This is, <coughs> I swear this is the end. <laughs> or I'll drop dead. This is called Walkabout Monongahela. That's a little town on, on a deep green and orange river, 40 miles from Pittsburgh, where where I grew up, where I was a little boy. I never walked London as a four-year-old boy, but back in the World War II years of the 1940s, I did walk miles and miles at night at the age of nine, several nights a week. It was always at least five miles in all seasons to the hilly river town of Monongahela, Pennsylvania. Unlike Branson, I didn't walk alone. I always walked with my sister Joan and my mother, who was nicknamed Booty. We walked at night to remain unseen. Nobody knew my mother was back in her hometown with a ruptured marriage, and she wanted to keep it that way. I didn't know, of course, and I wouldn't have known what to make of it if I had. As we walked, we would pause to stare in the lighted windows discreetly, 
These homeowners had once been high school friends of my mother's, and each home had a story, and my mother knew every one of them. So we roamed happy as pigs, three informal anthropologists doing field studies for year after year, total of four years of these walks. Those walks were the richest family experience. that I personally ever had. And they were my, sorry, they were my best educational experience too. 60 years later, I recall them vividly. My degrees at Cornell and Columbia, who are big, fancy, very expensive universities in the United States, was thin and watery, not worth the money it cost, its details left my memory soon after they happened. But not those walks. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I would have had better control at the end if I had some sleep. Thank you. God bless Australia. And God bless Brisbane. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. S Serena gave me a letter as I was leaving this morning. I read it in, you're quite a writer, that, and you have a very, very clear way of organizing things. I, I'm quite impressed. And what I'd like to do, if it's all right with you, and I can, we can use a, a pen name or some way to conceal your identity because I can guarantee you that these people you're talking about are very vindictive. But I'd like your permission to circulate to a few people your letter. I was very, very impressed with it. So, if it's okay with you, if you, this says, I give permission for John Taylor Gatter to quote from my letter to him unaltered in part or whole. If I request, he will conceal my identity for my protection. This, this young lady is a teacher and I, I, did you write that uh, here? Uh, no, no. Wow, that, that's, you need to write a book yourself because. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I need to speak up louder. Thank you very much. So the, the talk this morning is almost ready, the one you heard. I've been working on that one for 35 days, and I'd say another week or so, and it will, the parts will move together. The real temptation when you're talking about complicated issues 
is to cheat your audience. I must tell you the temptation is to simplify things, make them a cartoon, and then everybody nods their head because they seem to understand. It's just a week later when you get home, you say, what did he say? And it makes no sense. So I really struggle to put all the moving pieces in because these these issues are they're subtle the the parts that play against one another uh, aren't cartoons and if you're going to deal with them accurately I'll give you an example what you see on an organization chart about the power in Australian schools I guarantee you, I've never seen your organization chart, I guarantee you it is almost totally inaccurate. Nobody who works for the school system on any level, including whatever you call the, 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 the top name, has any power at all. They're all satellites of wherever the power is located. I would imagine in Australia, it's it, it, it certainly with the mining interests, uh, perhaps with sheep, uh, cane toads. I mean, but, I've, I've not ever seen a cane toad. but uh, And that's true anywhere in the world. The people who are hired to represent themselves as the creators of, uh, uh, of what the US system, the Australian system, are not. They're all fronts, every last one of them. And they know that. Now, if you know that, here's what you can do. If I knew in New York City, and I do, who actually calls the shots in New York schools, and I'm a lowly classroom teacher, and I want to do something that's absolutely forbidden, I don't waste my time talking to anyone on the school pyramid. I make a contact with somebody in the real power structure, and I say, I can make this worth your while because there's going to be a lot of favorable publicity if we pull this off, and I don't need that kind of attention. So as far as I'm concerned, this project, if it works, is your idea. Let me tell you how often that approach succeeds. It always succeeds. And now a phone call is made and the order goes out, just ignore whatever Gatto is doing. And I'm ignored even if they despise me. That's what I mean about complexity. Uh, so this weapons of mass instruction manual tonight, the ideas are all here, but in order to make them clear, to get clarity in this thing just requires rewrite after rewrite until finally you see that the pieces are balanced. For example, I read this over. This is the one I finished at five in the morning and I'm 
I'm doing what musicians call vamping till ready. I don't know if that expression's in Australia, but it means that I'm taking a deep breath because there's an imbalance in this piece. What I set out to do in the piece, besides touch precise bases, tools that hurt your children and hurt you in your day, I, I tried to provide a, a rational reason why this is done. The last thing we want to do is to look at this as some vast evil conspiracy. The truth is it's quite evil, but it doesn't regard itself as evil at all. It regards you as dumb, irrational, dangerous, etc., etc. That's why these things are done. But there's a more important reason they're done. And I'm going to try to ad-lib this reason. Because when I get to the section I wrote here, you know, it makes me blink. It certainly needs rewritten. There's a concept, there are two concepts, but one in particular you have to understand to understand why so much talent is wasted in schooling. Why people who normally would have bright ideas and initiative are dumbed down and disconnected from their own power. It would seem to be suicidal for a country to do that. So I'm gonna tell you about a disease that occurs in capitalism called overproduction, which is the worst nightmare for the people who run capitalist economies. Now, overproduction was a term used for hundreds of years until too many people like me figured it out. So if you read the financial press, what I'm about to explain to you is not referred to any longer as overproduction. It's called overcapacity. But it's much, it's much clearer if we call it by its original name. Here's the problem. Actually producing things, not working at a job, but producing things isn't very hard. And technology has made it pathetically simple for anybody to produce almost anything. What happens when too many people produce? Well, you can figure it out. We're flooded with goods and the price of the goods collapses and the money that was borrowed to tool up to produce these goods by the big corporations is lost and then they can't borrow money for their next productive enterprise. That's pretty clear, isn't it? There was in your part of the world throughout the 1990s a tremendous economic crisis caused by the fact that Japan, which had huge trade balances, huge balances, figured out a way to invest those balances 
that caused a nightmare of overproduction over here. What Japan figured out was that there weren't very many places to invest these trillions of dollars it had, but what if they broke that money up into little packages, a thousand here, five thousand there, and they loaned it to a rickshaw driver, for example, so that he could get a second rickshaw. They loaned the money to housewives so they could open little part-time grocery stores in their homes, etc., etc., etc. And for a little while, they were just swimming in profit from doing this, plus people felt good about them. All of a sudden, now figure this out. If you have a village of 500 people, how many rickshaws can it absorb? Because once somebody sees that, you know, that Bob has now got two rickshaws, they want to borrow money too. And Japan had it to loan. Now the village has three rickshaws, then five rickshaws, then 15 rickshaws, and 40 grocery stores. So overproduction, although that's, it wasn't humorous for the people whose economies collapsed over here, but overproduction has been around in, since the beginning of capitalism. So people in charge of things made defenses against it. And the best defense is in your mind where you don't think of yourself as a producer, but you're gonna work for a producer. If you excuse yourself from taking over economic command of your life, that's all to the good of the management of capitalist societies. But at the point when you begin to compete, you only need to examine the early years in the computer business where there were huge catastrophes all the time. Generations would change, you know, in a few months there because too many people were producing. The way that was stopped, maybe you already know this, the way it was stopped in the United States is for the U.S. government to issue gigantic profitable contracts to a few people, not because they made better stuff, but simply because they would then use this financial advantage to put their competitors out of business. The U.S. military is a favored uh, relay of those kinds of uh, subsidies. Anyway, so overproduction. So the rational reason, not the power reason, but the rational economic reason for dumbing you down in school and almost never allowing you to apply what you've been told you learned you know, so it's just so many words or hot air. The reason is to prevent overproduction. The second big idea you have to understand is something called hyper-democracy. 
That's a term invented by the Council on Foreign Relations about 30 years ago. And the idea is that modern society is way too complicated to actually allow democracy to work. It can work in inconsequential ways, in popularity contests, for example, but never, never on important decisions. The most recent example of that is so flagrant that I'm stunned that everybody didn't realize what was going on when Mr. Bush decided to attack a nation that hadn't attacked him first, he said he was organizing a coalition of the willing. And in that coalition, the first partner was Great Britain, which had voted in public opinion polls 88% against joining the coalition of the willing. And that was the best result of the partners in this war, 88% against. Spain was 97% against, and Spain joined the coalition of the willing. What kind of democracy precisely is that? I'll tell you, it's George Orwell's Newspeak from 1984, and if the young people in this audience haven't read that book, You've got to read it. It's only a hundred pages or so long. Orwell was on the inside of the people who planned the society we're living in, on the inside. And he's not talking about the Soviet Union. He's talking about Great Britain as an oppressive mind control state 40 years ago. Imagine with the sophistication of modern technology, how much farther that's gone. So hyper-democracy, the only country that actually responded democratically to the will of its people was France. France was 95% against the war and France didn't go. So the United States punished France by cutting imports in half and lots of other nasty ways. So school is intended rationally to redefine the word democracy, to mean that your mind should be occupied with popularity contests, never with serious decisions. Those are for insiders to make. And you should never, never think of yourself as a producer of your life. You're a consumer, and if you're a nice consumer, you can get a good job. Someone will pay you. But the idea of you paying yourself, well, okay, so now I've ad-libbed about half. But if you know those two concepts, then you can see why these otherwise crazy weapons of mass instruction were actually devised to put into place. Because otherwise it just seems like, like it's insane, which of course it is. 
since the middle of the 20th century, let's pick 1950, the economy has been made so simplified, so specialized, so algorithm-driven. Algorithm's a term you want in the front of your mind. It's constantly used by the, the insider tech crowd. It's simply a recipe for doing things. So you hear algorithm, you say, what's the recipe? What are the parts? What are the sequences? So it's become so algorithm-driven, the economy runs by formulae, that educated people with independent minds and active moral natures are dangerous to its health, and so are productive people. This is vitally important for you to know because you haven't a prayer of understanding how schooling hurts your kids without understanding first that schools must exist either as a friend of things exactly as they are or as a danger to that settled order. And if you're a danger to the settled order through your schooling or through your classroom teacher, count on the fact that there are eyes and ears everywhere to pick up deviation and to get rid of it. Those are the poles between which the school pendulum all over the world always swings. And because of that, the school equation is always primarily political, always. The only exceptions of that might be in little country towns that nobody cares about. We have trouble seeing this because we've been taught since early childhood to conflate schooling with education. And it's true, there's a little overlay of education on top of the political aspect. But your compass goes haywire when you fail to see that schooling must always be locked in a dance with the economy. In our case, in the United States with the corporate economy. I imagine there's a different mix here, but I know that extraction, the mining industries are huge here, and that you in fact operate your, your sheep farms as extractive industries because the vegetation doesn't grow back in a normal way. It's much more slow to recover here, and your trees hardly recover at all because the soil is so thin. So a whole lot of the operation of the Australian economy is mining of one sort or another. Schooling is the servant of things as they are, the best police, a conservative force and your attitude to change will determine your position on schooling. Thus, while managers traditionally sing the praises of education, and I know that if I read your big daily newspapers, they'd be jammed with the urgency 
to improve education, but that's not what they mean. They mean schooling. They are always actually on guard against the educated or the principled because those people have a habit of arguing. And if that unfortunate tendency to argue is coupled with the knowledge of how to argue effectively, then it's a nightmare for the political management. So how do we stop you from learning how to argue effectively? It's, as, it's just as easy as two and two making four. Instead of building the curriculum of schooling from kindergarten all the way through high school around the most important of the three literacies, which is not reading, it's speech, talking to all different kinds of people, being able to deduce, you, you know, what arrangement of an argument will work best. You can't learn that from books. You can learn the theory of it. You have to practice constantly. And as the last time I looked, speech is the least of the activities in schooling, the least of the activities. The second powerful, used to be a term for speech and writing, they were called the active literacies because they're the key to recruiting allies. So you're not just locked up in your head, maybe your reading has converted your consciousness, but you're trapped inside your head unless you can recruit allies. And you do that through speech and through writing. So all we have to do is pull the plug on those two things. Of course, schools go further than that. They pull the plug on serious reading, too. But if you just saw to it that most people couldn't speak or write except to people just like themselves, you have effectively rendered your population useless to themselves or victims of whatever you want for them. So, if you look at, if you look at things from this perspective, all that's required of subordinates, people down the chain of command, is that they get with the program. And if they can't get with the program, that they don't rock the boat. Seen this way, efficient management is the perfection of subordination, and it's the highest goal in an imperfect world. What school's role is in this management ideal is everything. It sets up the conditions for efficient management by depriving you of the ability to resist management. There are lots of ways other than not letting you learn how to speak and write, too. If your head's full of incorrect information, let me give you a piece of it that everyone in the world's head's full of, you can't pass through secondary schooling, high school, you know, without learning how 
in this great democracy, a lot of countries fit that, how laws get passed. And there'll be stages, one, two, three, four. In the United States, it's called how a bill becomes a law. But you actually only have to live in the real world and use your eyes and ears to realize that no bill ever became a law the way the book teaches it did. If that's all you know is to memorize those stages, you have no idea how to get your will written into law there. So there are lots of ways to make you ineffective. Uh, the, the contradictions of schooling, and there are many more than I can possibly discuss tonight, but all the contradictions are related to making management efficient. If you look at school from the perspective of individual growth, it's a personal surrender of possibility, not the addition of new possibilities, it's the surrender of possibilities. Four-year-old Richard Branson knew that when he walked miles through London by himself to get back home. That was an enhancement of possibility. How could you ever be afraid of doing anything again? I once had a, uh, an upper-class British couple inform me that the way they got rid of worthless children was, male children, is that you had to learn to have a good seat on a horse by the age of, I don't know, six or seven. It was a long time ago, but it was pretty young. And you had to learn how to trail ride, lots of low branches, so if you don't know what you're doing, you know, your neck snaps as you, you ride your horse under a branch that's too low. And I said, but that seems very, very dangerous. And, and the man said, well, if, we, if he gets himself killed, who needs him? That was his own son. So uh, there's a Darwinian attitude uh, at work. Uh, the most powerful weapon of mass instruction of all of them is the artificial extension of childhood. Back at the end of the 19th century, and a little before that in Germany, after centuries of trying, the business, the military, the institutional, and the church leadership succeeded for the first time in history in imposing a centralized form of schooling. And while it might be argued that the urge for education is timeless and universal, you can't claim that for compulsory schooling of any sort at any time or any place. The only way you can sell that is either at bayonet point or by lying to people about what your intentions are. So there was no public knowledge of the radical utopian strategy that was gradually inserted in these school places. And the most radical of all was the artificial extension of childhood. 
That's a deliberate lengthening of the period of childish dependency. By 1909, this is very precise now, four years had been tacked onto childhood in the United States and similar periods in the other important countries. But in the United States, by 1909, four years had been added. Where do I get that very precise figure? From one of the major designers who added the four years, so it's pretty impeccable information. By 1960, 10 years had been added to childhood. By 2000, 20 years. In Washington, D.C., a couple of years ago, several very important foundations said that adolescence wasn't over until the age of 32. <laughs> now, if you recall this morning, I said adolescence doesn't exist. It was invented in 1902. This spectacular change in the contract with young people reached the point by the year 2000 that divisions of the United States government were publicizing a view that it might be possible to think that adolescence wasn't over until 40. I mean, these weren't, if I see these weren't radicals, they were as radical as anyone ever existed, but just as the U.S. government now is an extremely radical government that calls itself conservative. Does anyone you know who, who, who is a conservative spend three quarters of a trillion dollars more than they earn every year? Is that conservative? Do they attack people who haven't attacked them first? Are these conservative things? These are profoundly radical undertakings but as Orwell showed in 1984, if you just assert something over and over again, most people say it must be true or he wouldn't say it. So, the tactics used to extend childhood are not hard to understand and you don't have to do them because you homeschool. You remove the subject from adult company and you embed the subject in a succession of worlds of children. Now what, what, what characterizes worlds of children is that they don't have much experience, but they do have a sense of power structure. So inside those worlds of children, some of them become authorities. They don't have information or experience, but they hammer home their point of view and their followers accept that. I mean, you can create this climate of low-level madness by keeping children with other children, which I know seems to be the most natural thing in the world. Well, let me tell you something as an old man in his 70s. When I was a boy, and all the people I know were boys, 
Nothing was more fascinating than the world of grown-up people, and you would drop your childhood friends in a second to, if you were taken in to some project run by older people. So that now that older people have become a kind of baggage on the world of the young, we really have an advanced state of insanity at work because the young don't have much to teach one another. It's a, it's a way of wasting time pleasantly. Uh, that's, so what I'm going through here is a list of things that create extended childhood. Then an environment of low-grade fear and anxiety is utterly essential. It was discovered a long time ago, centuries ago, that if you could impose a climate of low-level anxiety on people, they didn't breed very well. They didn't reproduce themselves. It became a population control mechanism to constantly stress out the poor in various parts of the world. The Brits were great at that. They invented the system. Then you want an environment filled with fantasy, illusion, and half-truths. Think of video games. Think of television. Think of films, which I must confess I'd rather watch film life than live life, but nevertheless I recognize that that's a disease. You demand that things be committed to memory that are deceitful, like how a bill becomes a law. So the kid walks around, or the young man or woman walks around with their heads stuffed with inaccurate information that they can't use to negotiate the world or solve their problems. So they quit trying to use it. Then children grow older but they never grow up. Under such a regime, generation after generation becomes more childish than the one preceding because people schooled this way make immature parents themselves. This new form of institutional schooling doesn't concern itself with intellect or the means through which intellect engages the world. I spoke to you about this part, speaking and writing, because intellect isn't its primary mission. It's to make the population manageable. The most sensational product of the school formula has been to create a culture of children, something that never existed in planetary history. I mean, it's just... There aren't samples of it anywhere. It first is hammered home in northern Germany because they came upon these ideas first. And now it's spread throughout the civilized world.
these ideas that I know are somewhat disturbing or the price you have to pay to jump into the school debate and, and to know what you're talking about. Now comes the elimination of principled people. They have to be exchanged for pragmatic people. You know, whatever works, you do. That's pragmatism. Principle is, this is a line I draw, you may not cross this line. Principled people are nowhere welcome in the civilized world for obvious reasons. They're full of opposition. And what you need to maximize your money or your power is to be flexible in every situation. But principled people aren't flexible. They have rules by which they live their lives, by which they choose their associations. A principled person will turn to the boss of a corporation and say, I'm sorry, I won't do that. Now, how many of those can you tolerate on your executive staff or even on the plant floor? You can't tolerate those people in this kind of an economy, and in a capitalist economy. And I'm not anti-capitalist, but certainly the diseases of capitalism are pretty clear. There's nothing wrong, though, with announcing that you have principles and values and pledging loyalty to them. You hear it all the time, these values announced except whenever practicality gets in the way, you throw your principle out. Kids see this almost immediately in schools. I mean, little people have this inbuilt sense of fair play. It's just universal, and they see the teacher says something and doesn't do it. Principal says something and doesn't do it. If liberty means anything, for instance, doesn't it mean you have the right to urinate when you feel like doing so? I don't know what Australian practice is, but let me tell you, in the United States, you can't urinate unless you do it in your pants. You can't urinate without being handed an official travel pass to the urinal. And if you're caught without the travel pass, you're in hot water. In this instance, the liberty principle, which we pay lip service to, is forced to defer to the practical principle of traffic management. You want to know where these people are at every moment. Or even to the priority of a teacher's need to get even to get revenge on a kid who's driving him crazy. It's the sheer volume of these instances decided against principle and for pragmatics during a 12-year stint in school, which instructs the student most powerfully about 
what's really to be honored in real situations. The forced confinement aspect of schooling, together with the arbitrary nature of the power exerted there, is an effective weapon of mass instruction used to prevent morality from sinking deep roots. As I told you a minute ago, you're expected to pay lip service to it, to nod your head and cluck your tongue. You're just not expected to insist on a principle when there's real work to be done. Think of 50 million children in the United States every day forbidden to finish what they're working on when the bell rings in order to feel the magnitude of amorality at work in the school institution. Does 12 years of being interrupted set up a destructive pattern in you? Of course it does. You don't ever feel that finishing something you start is important. Then the newspaper can write about, these people seem to be indifferent to good work. They need more time in school. A second source of school-weakened morality is the quantity of morally ambiguous imagery that school implants in an individual student's mind. Moral principles brought to school mutate into something strange in the Darwinian mill pond of schoolrooms. I'll give you one example of that, although I have a list of about 20 here. Bullying is winked at all over the civilized world. Of course, bullying is the exclusive cause of all the school shootings in the United States. And those facts have been abundantly teased out. Well, I worked 30 years inside some pretty good schools, and I can tell you that the bullies are let alone if they're talked to at all as soon as the victim is out of the room, or mother is, there's a wink and you say, hey, Bob, you know, you can't do that. It's exactly the way prisons operate. There's a wonderful book about uh, uh, total institutions. Uh, the author's Irving Goffman, G-O-F-F-M-A-N, and the book's Asylum. And it says you can't run an insane asylum or a prison or a school without joining in league with the most dangerous part of the imprisoned or the insane. You have to cut the people who are the leaders slack and the leaders are the bullies. So kids see that. They see that there's no help appealing to the teacher. Because if the teacher, any teachers in here, by the way, if, could I see your hand if you're a teacher? There's just a few. If you end up sending too many people to the discipline office, you will end up without a job, regardless of the justice of that. And I think that in the culture of schooling, 
teachers figure that out pretty quickly. So, and the better the school is, the more what I'm saying is true. It, it can't be a secret to you that the elite private boarding schools, the, the bullies run the show. There are classics in literature about that. Tom Brown's School Days is one that comes to mind. So think of what's going on here. Creating childish people who have no deeply grounded morality. They're like robot soldiers, and they've been used for several centuries to rule the world economically and militarily. Think what a nightmare it is for an army commander who has to deal with moral troops. I mean, they may fight, they may not. They may argue, no, you want people who, who in exchange for a gold star will kill anybody. In the new world order that's happening as we sit here, though, it seems to me that competition will never be one-sided again. Britain and the United States and Germany aren't ever going to rule the world again in a productive sense. It's not going to happen. And by dumbing down millions of people, it seems to me that we're committing a kind of suicide, throwing away our power, our imagination, our moral strength, in order to keep things as they are as long as possible. Let me give you an example of that, and then I'm going to tell you about the trapped flea strategy, which was taught to me three years ago by an 11-year-old boy. Maybe I better tell you about that first, because if I start ad-libbing, we're, 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 we're in trouble. Uh, Three years ago, I got an award from an organization, and it was at a fancy hotel in Washington, D.C., and I found myself sitting next to an 11-year-old boy. He was a Taiwanese immigrant. I think his parents, I'm not 100% certain, but I think they were both waiters in Seattle, Washington, and I'm next to this 11-year-old boy who's getting the same award that I'm getting. What's he getting the award for? Well, he had just won the adult science fair in Washington State for sequencing the genes held in common between mice and human beings. That's an interesting little fella, right? The son of two waiters who immigrated from Taiwan and don't speak all that much English and don't have all that much money. He's 11 years old. So his name's Andrew Sue, H-S-U. So in the course of uh, having lunch, I said, uh, Andrew, how did you uh, get into uh, your interest in sequencing genes in mice and human beings? 
And I'll never forget the first words out of his little mouth. He said, when I was little, <laughs> when I was little, he said, my father taught me how to train fleas. Does anybody here actually know about the long traditions, thousands of years old, of training fleas? It was a great favorite in courts in Europe and in Asia where the practice arose. And I actually got to, to watch a performance of trained fleas once. I mean, your jaw drops open. The fleas carry little whips, and they're whipping other fleas that are pulling chariots. They're swinging on trapezes, and they're doing incredible things. Naturally, every few minutes, you have to feed them by putting them on your arm, but I guess you, you do that. So how are you going to train fleas? When I tell you what Andrew told me, you'll instantly see that that's what I was hired to do for 30 years in New York schools. Andrew said, first you have to break their will. How do you break a flea's will? I didn't know a flea had a will. But the truth is, if you put fleas in a, everybody knows what a Petri dish is, a little shallow dish, they will instantly jump out and they'll head off in different directions. They actually have flea agendas, you know, and they got business to conduct. You can't train fleas if you can't make them still. So how do you make them still? You put a lid on the Petri dish and you go away for about three hours. During that time, they constantly trying to go about their business. They're hitting their heads on the lid. When you come back, the fleas will be huddled together in an almost inert mass, when you take the lid off the Petri dish, they won't ever try to get out again. You've broken their spirit by intervening in their own agendas. Does that sound like something that starts in kindergarten? I think so. And that's why I would urge you, if. If I fall dead or fall asleep before we get any farther in this, to build the curricula in your homeschools around some powerful interest your kid has. I don't mean not to teach math, science, you know, the, the battery of uh, different skills. Anything contains all those things simultaneously. It only takes a little bit of effort to find the mathematical dimension in that tripod and, and the camera that's up there or in anything else. But don't put the lid on the Petri dish and say, and now for something different, let him or her finish what they're doing. Don't make your homeschools subject-driven. Make them project-driven. It's night and day when you do that, because the end of a subject is a test, but the end of a project is something you can see 
and you don't have to give it a grade. It grades itself. It tell, I mean, do you, do you give the barber or the beautician a grade? You look in the mirror and you either scream or say, not bad. You know, you go to somebody else. All real things organically grade themselves. Let me put my specs back on. So, the trap flea principle that Andrew knew by the age of 11 told him, these are his words, he said, as it is with fleas, so it is with life. That's this 11-year-old kid. Most of us, he said, let the impositions of others imprison us in a world of low expectations. Now, Andrew's not only a mouse gene sequencer, he's a championship swimmer with a lot of medals and trophies. His original language was Chinese, but he's fluent in French and English. He helps to make professional documentary films with a professional film crew in Seattle. I won't try to intimidate you. The stories this morning, these I think are universal properties of human being. Don't ever fall for the bald-faced lie, well, that was a genius or this, you know, but that's out of ordinary reach. All these things are within ordinary reach. I mean, what is it, the journey of a thousand miles? You take the first step and the second step's easier. Uh, now the mystery of Andrew Sue is reduced when you learn that Andrew is homeschooled. Just as John Stuart Mill, the biographer of Liberty, was homeschooled and the inventor of artificial intelligence, Norbert Wiener at MIT was homeschooled too. Training fleas by first breaking their wills by confinement has been a precision skill for over 2,000 years, a favorite amusement of kings and courts. How far back it goes, I don't know, but I do know this, the secrets it reveals have been known to the policy classes for several millennia, long before we got forced schooling. The effects were known and the tactics to reach those effects. What was missing was a respectable scientific explanation why the population has to be treated like trapped fleas. Powerful people, of course, have never lacked for justifications for cruelty. But as I told you this morning, and I'm gonna go over a little bit of the same ground because it's so vitally important. As one millennium gave way to the other, stronger and stronger evidence had to be produced for treating people like trapped fleas. You couldn't simply claim it was God's will to do that. And during the last 41 years of the 19th century, 
using insights drawn from animal training, a fabulously wealthy individual, a fabulously well-connected individual in the very inner circle of the British throne, a man originally trained to be an Anglican minister named Charles Darwin, together with his equally wealthy and even more brilliant first cousin, Francis Galton, produced recipes for social control which caught the attention of the most powerful people on earth. Galton in particular was fixated on social control more than academic science. He wasted little time in warning what unchecked breeding and hyper-democracy could do to the established social order and what it would do to the best biological stock. And then he showed how institutional schooling could be used as a laboratory through which schemes to protect the best people could be silently inserted in the body politic. I mean at random, and there will be Galton books at your local library. Just take one of them. I mean, they're like peanuts. Once you've read what you can't believe that the first class mind with privileges up the wazoo can actually look at its fellow human beings this way, but it's worth a look at Galton. To pull off a mass improvement plan of the size Galton wanted, aimed at human beings, would require a degree of surveillance on ordinary people never attempted before in history, and a set of instruments to perform social surgery with precision on an unsuspecting audience. I almost fell to the floor two days ago when I read in the business pages of Financial Times that Google, the search engine is it? Google had a plan underway to completely map your personal habits, your movements on the internet, lifelong from infancy, and everything about your behavior with the announced intention of being able to tell you what job to take, how to use your spare time. Actually, the guy said, uh, we'll be able to tell you what to do tomorrow with your spare time. This is the goal, and they're getting hundreds of thousands, soon to be millions of people, to sign away their rights to privacy, and apparently not meeting any resistance. Just fascinating. Now, let's get to the big book that most people think of, Origin of Species. I would be surprised I would fall dead if too many people in this room have actually read it, but we all know about it, and I actually have read the book. Don't, don't bother. Uh, however, there's a chapter at the beginning of the book called Variation 
under domestication, and you see immediately that the story of the beagle sailing around the world and the slow observations made about natural selection has to be a fantasy. Not that he didn't sail around the world, but he had learned exactly what he taught from animal and plant breeders, and he acknowledges that in this chapter, variation under domestication. In fact, you can almost hear him shouting, I'm quoting Mr. Darwin exactly here. He said, our eminent breeders have in a single lifetime modified to a large extent their breeds of cattle and sheep. He abundantly illustrates this in this chapter, the remarkable effects that can be achieved through what he calls controlled interventions. So not so obvious in this positive catalog of improvements that a plant breeder or an animal breeder can make is the fact that controlled intervention's a two-way street and you can also use it to eliminate the bad breeding stock. Hardly anyone, says Darwin, these are his words, is so careless as to breed from his worst except mankind. Now, we're talking here not about the scientist you read about in high school science. We're talking about one of the handful of wealthiest men on earth. I'll bet you didn't read that anywhere. A fortune, a titanic fortune. His daily companions were kings and dukes and princes. That's why his plan spread so instantaneously around the world. He didn't bother to talk to college professors. I mean, talk to anybody. But he had the power connection and the money to indulge. After Darwin, Herbert Spencer, the British philosopher, invented the brutal phrase, survival of the fittest, to describe the outcome of nature's process. But I really want to put my foot down here they weren't describing the outcome of nature's process. That's the theory. What they were describing was the outcome of artificial selection, not natural selection. Artificial selection has proven itself over and over again in human history. But whether nature works that way is a theory filled with holes and the holes are never discussed in school textbooks. A curious sidebar of all this is the strange fact that Herbert Spencer, the champion of Darwin from the far right, was actually the uncle of the legendary Beatrice Webb. Does that name mean anything to you? She was the founder of Fabian Socialism. She's the only woman ever buried in, what is it, Westminster Cathedral? I mean, Beatrice was the big time where power is concerned, and she seemed to represent 
the left, but on Herbert Spencer's deathbed, they sat together and they both agreed they wanted the same outcome. Mrs. Webb would kill the unfit with kindness and Mr. Spencer with harshness, but both wanted the unfit dead. That information comes from Kitty Muggeridge's biography of Beatrice Webb. That's Malcolm Muggeridge's daughter, and he was a big publisher in London, I think. In a book published 12 years after the hours I told you about this morning, Darwin is much more direct in his analysis. He said, when an inferior race like the Irish crossbreeds with an advanced race like the English, man descends the evolutionary ladder. It marches backwards. And Galton, a much worldlier fellow than his cousin Charles, urged men of power to use the breeder's art to improve human stock. He wrote a book in 1869 that I know anyone in here would love to read. It's called Hereditary Genius, and I guarantee you it will be in libraries in Brisbane. Uh, he said this as a quote, it's quite practical to produce a highly gifted race. The science to do this, he invented it on the spot, is called eugenics. Cousin Galton instantly gained important followers all through the world, especially in the United States though. His pronouncements on biology and schooling, and he had lots to say about school being useful in this process, had profound effects. The statistical clouds which cloaked the nonsense of pedagogy and all the so-called social sciences, you know, the t-tests and all the rest, are a direct implantation of Galton, who was a world-class mathematician. Conversion from an older style of social thinking to a number-clotted, chart-racked, footnote-choked descendant form followed Galton's wish to make strategic social declarations seem to be scientific in mimicry of the hard sciences like physics and chemistry. In the 1920s, following Galton's advice, the United States Supreme Court ruled in favor of forced abortion of the feeble-minded. Buck versus Bell is the case. It's pure Galton, and it led to the death of 35,000 children of people who were feeble-minded. How were they determined to be feeble-minded? A family doctor would sign a paper saying that. And how do I know that? Because in a famous, famous case, a woman was about to inherit a huge fortune from her father, and I believe it was her brother had the family physician declare her feeble-minded, and the will said that if she were institutionalized, the money would pass to the brother. Now let me tell you something else. 
that's right under all our noses. During the 1930s, during the rise of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, constant delegations came from Germany and Japan to study racial science in the United States, particularly in the state of Indiana, where these abortions, forced abortions, were taking place in record numbers. And during the Nuremberg trials after the end of the Second World War, what I've never met one human being who knows, because we're not told, there wasn't one Nuremberg trial, there were two. There was a separate trial for the doctors who ran the biological experiments on the concentration camp inmates. And every single one of them said in their own defense, we were simply following patterns pioneered by the United States and Great Britain. And they called forced sterilization in Germany, the Indiana procedure. You can see why this second set of uh, Nuremberg uh, hearings is not openly talked about, but they're available. See, once you know these things, it's right up on the surface. Just, just give me a minute here. The, uh, one of the principal reasons for extending childhood was the children feel stress more strongly than older people who've experienced it a lot. So the effects of stress are more effective on kids than they are on older people. And if you want to stop people from breeding later in life, one of the known ways to do that statistically is to stress them in youth, like you're having, I have 20 minutes, you're having tests on Friday, you're having standardized tests in March, and if you don't pass the tests, you know, something awful will happen. So now comes the brilliance, though, if school could be used, and this is Galton's invention, as a constant stress mechanism on children, then the birth rate would in time drop. Not right away, but in time. In 1976, I believe, the birth rate in the United States went negative, and it has remained negative ever since. And you say, but the country's getting bigger. Not getting bigger by women having children, getting bigger by bringing in cheap labor from overseas. So you get the effect that everything's as it always was. It's steeply negative in the United States. I think we have 1.1 child per couple, and you need 2.1 in order just to maintain your population. You need that extra fraction because some kids die before they reach uh, uh, the majority. 
Each weapon of mass instruction I've mentioned so far, schooling, soldiers' education, the artificial extension of childhood, the dumbing down of intellect, the dumbing down of principle, the trapped flea strategy, and the creation of a theory of biological inferiority that guides this uh, uh, planning stage. Uh, all of these things are stressors of the first water. So Galton became deeply embedded in the fabric of forced schooling almost from the beginning. His ideas remain at the heart of that fabric today, working like the little mill that grounds salt. But other forces are active as well. But, but as we leave Galton, the clear sign of his presence is manufactured stress, which seems to have no purpose. If standardized tests don't correlate with anything at all other than your grade on the next standardized test, then they would seem to be an expensive form of insanity, wouldn't they? No, they actually have a great effect as a stressor, not that anyone who administers those tests is aware of that or is aware of the inability of statistical science to show a correlation with these tests that hasn't been rigged in advance. If you say, for example, you can't go to medical school unless you get certain scores on these tests, then you can point to doctors and say, look, they all have high standardized test scores. But that's only because you've legislated that, not because those people make better doctors. Okay, now we're ready for the horse in a box strategy. And this is a testimonial to the wonderful resources that are hidden in the human imagination. Would you believe that a magazine exists called the Horse Mental Health Journal? It's actually the Equine Mental Health Journal. How do I know that? Because somebody from the state of Kentucky that's a big horse state in, in the U.S. mailed me a copy and marked an article on it and they said, does this have anything to do with school? And what it was about is how to keep your horse from going insane. Now you probably didn't know that there if you were crazy enough to want to make horses crazy, it's known how you do that. And it isn't very difficult. A lot of people innocently drive their horses insane because they don't understand the, the dynamic at work. So let me tell you how you drive a horse insane. And I'm, the words are from the Mental Health Journal for Horses. Isn't it wonderful? I, I, I'm sorry, I'm just delighting in that for a moment. You keep the horse in a small stall and the area it has to run around outside of the stall is also small. You keep the horse predominantly idle. You keep the horse apart from other horses. You keep the horse 
from accessing the wisdom of the herd and the wisdom of its own nature, which it only learns by running at top speed and leaping around. But if it's in a small space, it can't learn that. And these are the effects. The conclusion is you will create an animal that interacts with the world in ways that are clearly unnatural. You get a horse that simultaneously is timid, undependable, bolting, bucking, avoidant, shying. It's crazy, in other words. You get a horse that doesn't know where it belongs in the world, and then the conclusion is just murder. Under such conditions, well-bred horses with tremendous potential end up living their lives as consumers instead of contributors. All you have to do is put producers in place of contributors, and what we have is a way to curtail overproduction by limiting the range of experiences and the range of risk-taking necessary to learn your own nature. So, I'm at the overproduction section, so I'm going to now be able to skip that, and I probably have 10 minutes left. There's a few other uh, of these that are, oh, gee, a lot of overproduction. Yeah. I mentioned this briefly this morning, but this is a huge one. Divide and conquer. Consumers, future consumers, need to be divided from one another. What you don't want in an ideal marketing world are people who confer with one another. So there's like a group wisdom that, that affects buying habits. You want them each to be isolated there. So if they have associates, it interferes with buying decisions. So this divide and conquer principle is a, an important aspect of marketing. You're much more susceptible to uh, emotional appeals if you're not sitting around, you know, with people who might be tougher minded than you are. Uh, a small political elite in control of communications, that the advertising business, TV, computer games, can split working people and the poor away from the natural alliances they need to protect themselves. And then I went into Spain, Britain, and France in Iraq, which we don't need to do again. Standardized testing, we've talked about, the major weapon. The short answer test. This I got from Oxford University, so this must be the truth. Somewhere in or around 1905, Oxford University declared in the gentlemanly way it does that their professional staff was not to use short answer testing 
or if they did, it was not to count at all in the final determination. Why did Oxford say that? <clears throat> Sorry, I'm losing my voice. The short answer test with its fixation on disconnected bits of data is an exercise in damaging the ability of the mind to think in complex holes. The watermark of an educated mind is contextual knowledge. That means connecting the dots, not memorizing them, but showing how they relate with one another, interpreting them. And that does not coexist easily with memory bit knowledge, which is the sign of a schooled mind or of an idiot savant. If right answers are reduced to being what you've been told to memorize, then you have been conditioned like a rat or a dog to be susceptible to the will of your handlers. Your ability to handle contextual thinking has been damaged without your conscious awareness. And over 12 <clears throat> years practice doing this short answer style, you are really a mess at the end of that time. You've had circuits implanted in your brain which can be activated from outside whenever a need arises to control your inner world. If you think mainly in fact bits, like a quiz show contestant, you have already declared yourself to people in the know to be an inconsequential opponent, nobody to be feared. Only folks skilled in dialectical thinking and deep context knowledge make formidable adversaries over the long haul. Short answer fraud cuts more deeply than the other categories of test criticism I've given you because it works to structurally alter the ability of your mind to locate truth. And the last one we'll talk about, although now the pump's primed, you would be able to put together your own interpretation of the, the weapon structures. But the last one, once again, the, the absurdity of it is right on the surface. It's so obvious that none of us think about it. What on earth does competition have to do with learning anything? Anything at all. Driving an automobile, mixing together peroxide, drain cleaner, and wait, 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 peroxide drain cleaner and uh, paint remover to make the bomb that blew up the London subways. That's all it was, with those three ingredients, with some sawdust in to stabilize it, and a cell phone planted. Now, I don't know how to use a cell phone to set off a bomb, but I'll bet sitting in this room, there is at least one person, and probably more, who do know how to do that. Don't tell me, because... <laughs> anyway, winners and losers. The school start in kindergarten with absolutely meaningless contests, daily contests, 
to create winners and losers? Do we, in fact, stuff kids in compartments where everyone knows where the winner compartments are and the loser compartment? What does it feel like to be in a loser compartment for 10 of your 12 years? I would imagine it eliminates you from being very effective in your life forever and ever there. What on earth do these competitions have with learning? You want to learn to be able to speak to any kind of an audience, fine. In Brisbane, I see there are people from all over the world. Get your kid out to talk to those people. Invite them into your home for dinner. Make your kid carry his or her share of the conversational weight, and you will create an effective speaker just like that. It's that easy to do. If your kid wrote 50 words a day for a year, then 100 words a day for the second year, then 200 words a day for the third year, and 300 words a day for the fourth year, without any intervention at all or red marks on the paper, I guarantee you the kid would become a very competent writer. And what types of writing demand more than about 300 words? Not many. If you need longer, you just do 300-word packages and stick them together. Read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. I pray as homeschoolers you will do that. And find out what kind of a curriculum a 12-year-old boy who's working at a hard job 60 hours a week in his spare time puts himself and his friends through and how he teaches himself to be a writer so good that he talks the king of France out of so much money to pay for the American Revolution that France goes into a revolution immediately because that money was earmarked for bribes to keep the lid on the resistance. And this is a guy from a family of 16 whose father is a candle maker. So they had enough to eat, but that's the, that was in the American colonies, the lowest of the crafts. Uh, positions possible. And here's a guy who's a member of the Royal Society in Britain for his experiments with electricity, who creates the American Post Office, who founds the University of Pennsylvania. It boggles the mind. Winners and losers, you don't need that. The easy advantage it gives you that it gets a little bit of the juices flowing soon vanishes when the winners turn out to be the winners every time. And you have to lie and say, if you just try a little harder, you know. If you're going to play winners and losers, get the kid in a business at age six like Warren Buffett was. If he wins, he'll come home with money. And if he loses, you can figure out how to solve that problem. He's doing something wrong. Well, at that point, I'm going to terminate this, although I would be happy 
to stay as long as anyone wanted. But I have a feeling that somehow or other the management <laughs> wants this terminated, or am I wrong? I hope. Do they have some time to say things? Yeah. Uh, my ears are all stuffed up, but I, I heard the word facility. In the back, I see a hand, unless it's somebody yawning. Oh, my goodness, you've already done the biggest part. In the face of tremendous prejudice and suspicion, you have said, sorry, not for me, with your kids. At this point, you're in gravy. There's almost, there's really so many things you can do right that you hardly have to get a recipe from somebody else. I mean, the core of the recipe would be a huge amount of raw experience. Words don't mean a thing. The, the, the abstractions, the big, they don't mean anything unless you have experience. You can pass tests with them. What does the word democracy mean if you think that Great Britain is a democracy and 88 out of every 100 people didn't want to sign on to a war in Iraq? And what kind of a democracy is that? I mean, it's absurd. Well, you can do a lot of things, though, and... and and there, there are millions of homeschoolers who've written about what they've done. What you have to do is what every philosopher in human history, no exceptions to this, say is the most important thing. There isn't a formula that fits everybody. That's why your fingerprint's not like anybody else's fingerprint. You have to have self-knowledge. You have to study yourself, and you will tell yourself how to develop your gifts. You know much more about your son or daughter than they do because you know yourself, you know your husband or your wife, you know both sets of grandparents, and you probably know associated family members. You sort of know the gifts that pass down through your family. It doesn't mean your kid has to follow those, but now if you keep your eyes open, your kid will tell you what he or she wants to do. Everyone has a calling or several callings. They may not know it themselves, but you know them, as I say, better than they know themselves. And you can nudge a little bit. You can set up experiences. You can show them how easy it is not to be a child but to go right for the top. You want an apprenticeship in a television studio? Go to uh, some big local television star and say, I have an idea that I think would be very good publicity for you. I would like to be your apprentice for a couple of weeks and make a small film or even a slide sound show called A Day in the Life of Nicole Kidman. Okay. And why not? Uh, what a great actress. Anyway, uh, 
you say, and what I will do then is I'll put a copy of that film in every school that I can afford to, and I'll raise money and try to put it in every secondary school. And then the newspapers will say that you've become a piece of school curriculum and that you are clearly community-minded and valuable. Did I make that up on the spot? No, one of my girls did that with the hottest TV anchor in New York City who had hung up on her until we worked out a plan to find out where she lived and then leave a gift in front of her door every day, which drove her insane. So she finally called and said, you can come in for one day. And I said, now you got your foot in the door like a good salesman. If all you do is take, you know, they'll gladly get rid of you. But suppose you went in with an offer that you could make this person look good to a segment of her audience. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, you always go for real accomplishments, not simulated accomplishments. We can, um, we, we will take some questions and answers. If anybody has to go and they feel like um, they don't want to hang around, you're free to leave. You're not bound to stay, of course. Um, okay, we're going to um, just uh, thank you, thank John very much for coming and for presenting to us a wonderful message.